Here we go. Well, hello. After a long break, we are back with a new episode of I've Known You Too Long. My guest today is Griff Somke. I have no idea if I said your last name right. No, you had it. It's perfect. Cool. Normally I do a little introduction after I give some information, but I knew I was going to have a hard time with that last name because I don't know that I've ever said it out loud. Weird. Yeah, it's uh, Somke. It's great. It's uh, It's got a B-K-E at the end. Yeah. That's, that, I think for some people you know, that had a public school education like myself, <laughs> that might be difficult. But Griff Somke. Correct. I know you from the 90s. You <laughs> go back to the 90s, and Griff played bass in Matt Matsuoka's band The Hit. That's how some people would know him. Griff's done a lot of really awesome other stuff, and <laughs> he's done a lot of things recently that are very cool. And I think he played music before, but I was racking my brain trying to remember the different stuff that he did. Oh, my. Um, so well, let me introduce him. Griff, okay. welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. We're, we're going to get to those things uh, in a minute. That you've done from before. But I always start this with a statement, and it's the name of the show. Griff, I've known you too long. Yes, you have. Okay, but what I really mean is I've known you so long, you know, that I don't I don't even remember when it was we met exactly. I actually do. I know an event that brought us closer together as friends, but I thought we had met prior to that. I remember our first conversation. Okay. Our first conversation was on the bus? Yes. No. Okay, same thing. We were both living on Capitol Hill. On Capitol Hill. Bellevue Avenue East. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Within a couple blocks of each other, I N- think. 96, 97? That would have been 97. 97. That would have been 97. I'm coming home from my job as a delivery driver at Kinko's downtown right. Seattle. You're on the bus. But here's the thing. We already knew each other to start talking to each other. You know, I wasn't sure it was you. And you pulled out a copy of Maximum Rock and Roll. I like that. I wasn't sure, but you but pulled see, it out. You just said I wasn't sure it was you. So that's not our meeting. That's not our first meeting. That was just where we had a, a nice conversation, actually extended way past the bus ride, and we ended up talking on the street like, yeah. like people used to do in America. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can even remember what we talked about. I mean, we talked about Texas is the reason. We had this long we conversation. We talked about the band? Yeah. Oh, I love that band. We had a long conversation. No, this is perfect time of the year for them, too. Just <laughs> in fall. It's a perfect fall band. Oh, yeah. The band Texas is the reason. Absolutely. Okay. And we talked about Texas is the reason for a really long time. They had just played here and I had missed it. I like the way you say it. Which? Texas. How'd say it? Say the name of the band again. Texas is the reason. Texas is the reason. Well, yeah. It sounds like you're asking, you're, you're answering the question rather than making a statement. Like, what's the reason? Texas is the reason. That's what I'm saying though. I like that. <laughs> See, I always say Texas is the reason. Right. It's like you're it's like you're making a statement to someone and they could be like, what reason are you talking about? You know what I mean? But like, <laughs> I kind of like the way you I, I want to maybe try to start because it's a hard name to say anyway, kind of for me. Because it's, is it's the kind reason. of long for a band name. I, I, mean, slur, it really is. I slur words together and stuff horribly. So right in the middle, it's like Texas is the reason, whatever. <laughs> but Texas is the reason. Yeah, it's it could, you could even it's almost like you're a little bit offended too. like the person didn't know. <laughs> You know, you always think of it like, where did that name come from? And if if I'm remembering this right, it's from Bullet by the Misfits. It, he's, you know, saying Texas is the reason why the president's dead. That the president's dead. Right. You got it. Yeah. So it, it's, <laughs> it did, to me, sound like the answer to a question. You know, Texas is the reason. And I guess that's why I say it that way. 
you're nerdier than I am about this stuff. No, wow, it's good though. Well, I really, okay. I sometimes get fascinated by the way people say names of bands or, or thing like things that a lot of people say when they accent different parts of the words than the way I do it. You know what? And it just, that's something that I'll, that I'll really fixate on. Fist bump me on this because I'm in the same boat. I can I, can I digress for a second on this Please subject? Please do. So in the early 2000s, I spent a year living in Berkeley, California, and everybody, I worked at a place called Seabreeze Market, and everybody that I worked with, for the most part, didn't look a whole lot like me. And one of the things of the vernacular that was really interesting is that nobody seems to say, I live here. They always say, I stay. Well, it's Berkeley. Well, no, it's not Berkeley. <laughs> it's <laughs> you know? not? It's um, a speech pattern that if you think about it for a second, you ask that question, how come no one ever really says live? How come people say I stay down here yeah. instead of I live there? Kind of reveals a lot about how you look at the world. It does. You know, recently with all the stuff that's been going on with these with these police videos that have been all over the... Right. the you ever notice that um, the police ask people, where are you staying? Yeah, because that's how the police probably hear it said. And if you're trying to I connect know, with that person, it trips me out because it always seems like it's kind of in a, sometimes it's in a, a situation that's already degrading and it almost feels like to me, mm -hmm. it almost feels like you're asking someone where's their temporary residence. Cause obviously you don't have your shit together. The thing is I see, I'm going to be literal for one second because I totally see where you're going with that. And I agree with you, but there's also the idea that you kind of have to talk to people in a language that they're familiar with. And if that's how everybody you deal with from that community refers to it, you're right. Soda and pop, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know where you're from. If you tell me you're going to go get a pop, okay. you know, it's that same kind of concept. And if everybody that you talk to over the course of a day says, Oh, I stay down here. Then right. that's how you're going to start saying it after a while. Right. And I'm, I, I've grown up in the Northwest. I have lived here my whole life. Right. So people say where they live, right? Not where they stay. And that was kind of a shock to me. And like I said, being nerdy about how people say stuff, I found myself like literally asking that question and I get people just, why are you asking? Why do you care? Why does that matter? And it's kind of like, well, <laughs> because I'm nerdy about this. I mean, that's why it matters. It's, I, it's not the way most people say things. Yeah. Cause this stuff is fun or whatever. Yeah. I... <laughs> God, I don't know who the Kardashians are. I have so, to think about this kind of stuff. <laughs> I know who the Kardashians are. I don't watch the show. After this is over, you can tell me. <laughs> You've seen pictures, right? I think I saw a video once. Okay. So, like, there's a lot of video. They have, like, reality shows and oh, everything. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, you mean on the internet? Yeah. <laughs> and I said that specifically when you took a sip of your beverage. <laughs> Were you hoping I was going to get... Uh, I, was, I was wondering if I could do it. I was going to spray soda all over the microphone? <laughs> I was wondering if I could make you do it. <laughs> I timed it just right. Uh, no. No. Oh, he's a professional. <laughs> That doesn't happen. It's possible, but you, you have to try harder. Word. Okay. So we met on the, we met, I guess, formally on the bus, the city bus coming back home. Uh, the thing about Griff, Griff played music in the, uh, in the punk rock and hardcore scene back in the day. And then he played with Matt in the hit. Uh, you know what? I like the hit so much. I'm just going to take this opportunity to play some of the hit. Word.
Where's a smile I could read with promises and life outside? May I take you into my whirlwind conversation? Rock the waves across the nation. Will lead you home. I just referred you to myself. I've never seen you here before. I've never seen you until now. Before me, angel light, pack my bags and catch a flight with you. You're the message in between. You're the answering machine. You're the light that waits outside for me. Kissed and heaven said to me a complication Cross the waves across the nation You're the message in between You're the answering machine You're the light that waits outside for me And no one else Rushing water, overdrive I feel on fire, I feel alive with you Under the Okay, see, I love that band, and they were a big deal for me, and I felt like it's where Matt really brought everything together. Griff and I share, we're part of a very small group of people that are close to Matt Matsuoka or have been close to Matt Matsuoka and his inner circle. 
we didn't get much of a chance to talk about this, but Matt is actually going to have a regular podcast on this network very soon. Oh my. That's. Oh, that's a must listen. He's already done an episode, uh, which I don't know if you heard any of. No, I haven't. Okay. He's already done an episode. Um, I've had people tell me it's their favorite. I'm sure there are people out there that it is not their favorite, but that's part (laughs) of the reason why I don't want Matt to have a show. Um, It's not officially uh, announced yet, so, but it's, we've been doing work on it. He's getting stuff together for it. So uh, I'll be in it. I'll be on it also, but I'll be like his board op. I'm just going to basically be helping him get the show going. Right. And yeah. (laughs) Matt is phenomenal. He's more creative people in a lot of ways that I've ever met in my life. The funniest thing about Matt is realizing before you were in a band with the guy that you didn't know him at all. I had an idea of who I thought he was. And then I started playing music with him and I'm like, oh my. Oh yeah. The image people have of this guy is not even close. And if everybody in the world could see that side of him, they would just, I mean, he'd be the biggest star on the planet. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And Okay. Since I don't know exactly how the persona is going to come across on the podcast, I'm not going to blow up his spot. I'm just okay. gonna, you know, I'm not going to like no mess things up for him. I don't no even know blow up his spot. Was there, do people even say that anymore? That was like huh. a one month. Saying, yeah. Right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, um, so then you, you did that and lately you've been doing something awesome, which is a lot different than what a lot of other people I know from the music scene have done, which is you own a jujitsu school. Yeah. So And you didn't do that back then, no, did you? No, not at all. So you got into this in the 2000s? I started doing this in 2005. 2005 and got so into it that you became a player in the world of jiu-jitsu. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but yeah, I've... You don't have to. I'll do it for you. I've been doing this... So I'm one of those people that when I get into things, I get really into things. I don't do that sort of half commitment. I don't commit to a lot of stuff, but when I commit to stuff, it's ridiculous. So I started doing this in 2005. Um, I had an IT job at the time. I kind of hated it. We were working for a guy who was at the time running what was a startup record label Mm -hmm. that didn't end up going anywhere. And um, well... Parts of it became Mars Hill Church, which apparently went down the tubes at that point, too. So, <laughs> Well, we, I don't want to tell the end of the podcast necessarily yet, Oh, but because we'll get to that. So the, let me give you the format. Here's the format of this show. We figure out when we met. Okay. Usually, sometimes with some people, that takes a long time. And you and I don't have it totally pinned down. We, we, we'll, we'll just talk for a couple minutes more about why we knew who the other person was okay. to recognize each other on the bus. And then I take you back... And I figure out where you came from and why it is your life led you to the place where we would have interacted in that time period in punk rock in, you know, in the past. Okay. Okay. Then once we get all that sorted out and figure out what, what makes you tick, then we come forward from there and we figure out what we've been doing. No problem. My bad. So if we, if I get the whole story on the, on the school, then, uh, okay. Okay. Then it's going to be so we can edit we're, this. We're giving away the end. Oh no, we're not editing it. Oh, I just because actually ex- explaining the way the sh- the show, podcast goes is also part of what I do in the podcast. Because okay. you know, a lot of times I don't tell people what we're going to do before we sit down and put these headphones on. So it's just part of the fun because you never know how things are going to come out. Okay, but I wanted to give people an idea of who you are, like like what you do now, where you've come to. You're a person who. Owns a jujitsu school in Edmonds. Yeah, just down the way from here, Edmonds, Washington. Um, and is it? Are you the man? 
I have a partner. His name's John Sylvester. But for the most part, I teach a lot of the classes. Um, John is a little older than me. He's one of my mentors kind of in that scene. And he's somebody that when we had been talking about doing this for a while, we'd been talking about doing this for like a good couple of years. And then life circumstances kind of forced the issue. We went ahead and opened it and we celebrate our fifth anniversary of being open February 1st. Excellent. In my head, it, 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 it's been going longer. <laughs> Some days it feels that way. <laughs> I would have, I mean, if someone told me how long you've been doing, I'd be like, oh, he's been doing that for like 10 years now. Actually, yeah, that's how long I've been. I've that's been how, that's how long it. you've been doing the jujitsu, but right. the school is, is five years. Um, Yeah, the school's going to be five years. Cool. Which, now that I think about it in those terms, is kind of like, what was I thinking doing <laughs> it five years? Wow. Well, okay, so, so let's do the thing. So we run into each other on the bus. We end up, I mean, I was going home. I had my backpack. I was like off work. I was going to go home, and I ended up. I remember we, I felt like we were standing outside in the corner, like talking for like 45 minutes or something. Oh, easily. Yeah. And just, I mean, it was one of those like, like, Hey, we haven't really had a conversation before. I didn't know it was going to be the, the kind that don't stop. And it was, <laughs> it was, I love that. You're one of those people that like, I just clicked to talk to. So it was like, Oh man, I don't, I don't really want, I don't really want to stop talking to this guy. This guy's cool. <laughs> He's got some good ideas. But so why did I know you before that? Um, I'd been kind of kicking around the Seattle scene since about 95 when I moved here. I grew up in Spokane. Okay. Now, was it the East Side scene or, or Seattle? Little of both. Um, Were you playing I didn't make in that. Bands? Dis- I was playing in bands, but I wasn't in with either the Firehouse kind of crew or really with anything that was going on in Seattle. I didn't... And, I didn't and really most know. people listening to this know what these distinctions are, but just in case, you know... We, we get more listeners at some okay, point, and they okay. want to know what this means. Uh, Seattle is right next to Lake Washington. On the other side of Lake Washington, you have Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland. Right. A lot of people that went on and do a lot of great stuff were from the east side, which is what we think of as people on the other side of the lake, Bellevue, and, and heading out east in the country. So we're on the west side of the lake. And the Redmond Firehouse was an all-ages club that had that was stable and had a nice big room where good bands could come play all ages shows. And it really incubated the scene um, at a time in the early to mid nineties. That was just great. And uh, Seattle had some problems with all ages shows. We actually had a teen dance ordinance that made it technically illegal to have them. So a lot of what actually went down, went down on the East side. So right. not in Seattle, but with Seattle people. And I'm coming in 1995 from Spokane where Every all ages show we ever did in that era was a fight with the police, with the city, with something. There was a guy named Terry Grobe who literally like went almost to his grave doing all ages shows over there. And it was so shocking to come over to Seattle and see, I think one of the first shows that I went to over here, because I was friends with um, Ian Hernandez from Sicko and they were opening for jawbreaker at this old firehouse in redmond i think the show ended up being a dollar it was it was the the one dollar jawbreaker show at the old firehouse and i just i couldn't believe that the city of redmond was cool with this because i'm coming from spokane where they're not oh yeah and that was probably still at the time when the old firehouse was going and all the kids were out smoking on the street oh absolutely or or, or in the right just right outside the door you know right in the little uh they had a little like smoking area yeah they had a smoking area for the kids and and this is 
look, I know this is controversial for people, but the most effective that place ever was for being a positive influence in kids, in teenagers' lives, was when it was allowed that they could smoke on the premises. As soon as the rules came into place, it was an effective place for less people. If their friends didn't want to go because they couldn't smoke there, mm-hmm. then you couldn't get... What ended up happening is if you want to think of it as good kids and bad kids, you didn't get the good kids dragging the bad kids into a good orbit. You got the bad kids dragging the good kids into a worse orbit by not being in a place where a lot of good things could happen. You could get inspired. There were great people working there. Right. They could, you know, I mean, kids would come in to see a show, but then they'd see like, wait, there are things that happen here. This is a teen center. I can get help for something or I can learn how to do something that I'm interested in. There's also, there were so many cool things about it. Yeah. It was a magnet. It was like kind of to a certain extent, like a more scrubbed and polished kind of version. I mean, if Gilman street was run by the city instead of being run by the punks, Gilman street in Berkeley, nine, two, four Gilman, Gilman street project, whatever we're calling it these days. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm just, you know, it's, I'm, I know there's going to be someone listening that oh, right. just doesn't know when you just throw out Gilman that, <laughs> that, that what it is. I was watching a, a documentary on Netflix called I Dream of Wires. It's a, it was about modular synthesizers, the modular synth music from their creation to today. Okay. And two thirds of the way through this documentary, there's just a shot of inside of Gilman with synth stuff in there. And they didn't name the place. But it was, I've seen that view in so many pictures. I've been standing there where that cameraman was taking the picture. <laughs> like, I was just immediately like, oh my God, this is Gilman. And I wonder if they were going to say it. And they just said, you know, they meet, you know, once a month at a, uh, at a, at a venue in, in Berkeley. They never said the name <laughs> of the place. And they, they actually filmed a little segment in there. It was very cool. So, I mean, for some people, Gilman is just life, right? Yeah. It's yeah. the way that CBGBs was for people. It's a signifier. I mean, you say mm-hmm. that word in front of certain people and they know. Yeah. They know what you're talking about. That, And if they don't know, you're like, okay. Hmm. So, but that's, I realize though, there are, I realize Griff that we're old and that might not be true <laughs> <Yeah>. anymore. <laughs> Good point. Is Maximum Rock and Roll still around? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In some form. I saw a print copy not too long ago, and I'm so old that not too long ago might mean uh, a year and a half ago at Singles. <laughs> so at, at Singles Going Steady, the record store. Downtown. I did drive by Singles, and it's still around. I looked so. at something online recently. They, I think the the last thing I was really bummed out bummed about is that they actually did away with the the print classifieds section in the back. Oh no! And it went to all online. <laughs> you know, from a logistical standpoint, that makes so much sense. I know, but, but that was an era. <sighs> They probably don't put out book, book your own fucking life anymore either, do they? No, nope, that thing. That I, I think someone was trying to start that up again, but it's just the internet just does all those things that it's so, the internet. Is so and much I'm not gonna. For this. You know what? I want to talk about you. So okay. if people don't understand the conversation we just had, we'll get into stuff you can understand. All right, no problem. Okay, so what band? What what were you doing? So you came over here. You knew the guys from Sicko. Yeah, that actually, I remember that. Yeah, I, I knew remember- the guys from Sicko. I'd been putting on shows in Spokane more successfully than playing in bands. I mean, I'd played in bands for. Some nobody you've ever heard of, but I had been putting on shows over there and I just kind of started picking up where I left off going to shows. The first time we might've been in the same room might've been crane and dead guy at the old velvet Elvis back then. If you oh, went to that, man, cause that was like literally the night I moved to Seattle. 
Okay. Because I saw those guys like that night. And well, you were going. To, so you were night. going. You were going to Jawbreak the Firehouse. You're going to Crane and Dead Guy oh, yeah. at the Velvet Elvis. We, we were just chosen. in the same place. So we right. we were just occupying the same place. You get to know who people are. Right. But we didn't. Uh, we weren't friends. Right. And then after that, we were friends. And then next thing I know, you're playing with Matt, which is awesome. Actually, next thing I know, years later, <laughs> you're playing with Matt. It seemed like right away. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what I need to know then is how did it happen for you? Where did you come from? Where were you born? Well, I was born in Spokane, Washington, um, 1975. So, yes, I'm, I'm getting old. You're still, this year. I wish I was born in 75 at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um. Grew up reasonably normal, um, north side of Spokane, very suburban. Don't really know what that means. Reason, what is reasonably normal in, in 19... So it grew up, you mean the first 10 years? Yeah, first 10 years. So until um, 85. Till 85. You um, grew up normal. What was a normal... Typical... Life for you. Skateboarding, BMX bikes. That, that was, um, skateboarding was normal? Seemed to be. Or for little, little kids skateboarding or like you were riding like real no, boards? No, I was riding real boards from the time I was like eight or nine. I was never very good at it or anything, but I mean, that was what the kids did. Okay. So you see the kids skateboarding and you're like, oh, I want to try that. It looks cool. Um, BMX bikes, going to school. Which was first, BMX or skateboarding? Oh, definitely BMX. BMX. BMX, definitely. Okay. So you, you might have had a BM, BMX bike when you were, what, seven? Oh, yeah, probably. Okay. Do you remember what it was? Um, Listen, first bike and first skateboard are important questions and i ask it well and that's why i'm trying to get it right here because i want to say it was a kuahara <laughs> you came in you came in hot but it might have been a torque or two it's one of those two but either one of those is a good bmx bike right yeah yeah it was reasonably good like a a bmx pro could ride that bike and and excel on it right right okay. i don't it wasn't a murray i had a team murray it was the you best team and it was actually the best bmx bike i had really I didn't have any money. Oh. <laughs> that was like huge that I got that bike and it was awful. I had a Huffy before that. Huffy. Mm-hmm. Look, but I gave up on the idea of riding a bike. Like a bike was a means to just get me to a place. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't actually ride. I couldn't actually race or anything and I couldn't afford the stuff. Right. And there was no way to have a job where I lived or anything. So, um, Oh, I never raced. Let me just get that clear. I never raced. I was just, you know, like every other neighborhood kid, just riding bikes and sure. jumping on things when we would build jumps and stuff like that. But so when did you get a skateboard? Oh, probably right about nine or 10. And it was a Veriflex. Okay. So see, you came in, you came in the way a lot of people did. It was a Veriflex. Yep. All right. All right. Veriflex. Um, actually had we talked about this uh, it was maybe with chris williams veriflex actually did come from a family of people that that had some quality to the skateboard they weren't good right but there was a, it was a little more connected there it were wasn't team, nash it wasn't nash it wasn't even volterra okay but so you you were you weren't right at the bottom no like one step up from the bottom. And did you did you get more boards later? Did you get into the world of skateboarding? Oh, God. Oh, God. I got into the world of skateboarding. Yes. Okay. So you, then uh, you started buying real stuff. Yeah, absolutely. What was your first good board that you were proud of? First good board that I was proud of. <laughs> oh, you're going to laugh because I know you remember this. Um, <clears throat> I will. Um, Tony Hawk Mini with Bonite XT. Whoa, it was a Bonite. It was a Bonite. It was a Bonite and it was a Mini. It was a Mini. Mini Hawk. Okay, so uh-huh. what was your setup? You, you, geez, you must have had trackers. Um, actually, no, I think I had Independence. I don't think I had trackers. Indies on a Bonite Either Hawk. Either Indies what or is that? Ventures. What, what is that? 
Indy. Sacrilege. <laughs> <laughs> it was whatever they had at no, Spoken no, Sport we, in downtown we Spokane. We set up boards like that, but for some reason, I I, I, I mean, I don't know. Did, well, I think it's because Hawk, Hawk Rock were, Trackers. Is that what it was? Hawk Endorse Trackers. Well, and then here's what. the thing. Trackers with a light truck. So you're going with the Bonite board. You're going for light. You might as well have a board that's so light you don't even know it's there. Well, I what think I wheels? got it. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> another contradiction here. Um, it was either Rat Bones, which it might have been, or it was OJ2s. OJ2 Streets? 95A? Oh, yeah, Rosa Street? No, nah, 92s would be, I think. This, I don't know. I rode the, I rode, I liked gummy wheels. I Talk about a contradiction, man. I liked loose trucks and gummy wheels. Huh. I, I liked think, to carve. You know, I didn't get into carving until much later. <laughs> I mean, we had, we had streets. We didn't have pools. There was like one No, pool. we didn't either, but I just liked the idea that that's what I was doing. <laughs> like when my friends were trying to learn kickflips in the covered area because it was raining in Bellingham and we couldn't skate anywhere else, I was trying to, uh, well, one, I couldn't do kickflips, but also like, you know, maybe, maybe I could also like, you know, I don't carve know, carve a, a line here. <laughs> <laughs> so well, we used to we did lose the Bellingham our trucks periodically. We, we had a, like a downhill we used to do where one person would drive us up and then we'd right. go, go through this neighborhood and pretend we were, you know, pretend there was cool stuff to skate there because there wasn't. So there was this movie called Thrashin' that I'm sure Dave's probably memorized. I, you, I'm going to... I've seen Thrashin' maybe... Okay, Gleaming the Cube, I've never actually seen. Thrashin' I've seen all the way through once. Okay. Thrashin', uh, I didn't at the time even want to go see it because on the ad for it, the guy was wearing his Rector wrist guards upside down. Yeah. Like he had the the part that actually protects your wrist like on the wrong side. Right, There's a there's a, there's a plastic part that is supposed to go on the bottom. But mm-hmm. if you're wearing them and you're standing the normal, you can't see them. And some smart person uh, <laughs> said, put those on the other way because then you can see the part. It, it right. looks like you have something on, except that's not functional. That's like you're gonna wearing a hat worse. on your ass or something. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. So I remember everyone was like, Ugh. and at the time they were making cash in movies on trends, right? Mm-hmm. They always had kind of the same storyline, right? New guy, Likes the girl. Girls is sister of bad guy in the same scene he wants to be in. Right. And they There's fight your movie. somehow. And they fight and then become bros. And that's no. the storyline. So, okay. So at least put what I love in that movie correctly. Right. And when you, when your poster, you've already failed. I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be involved. I just watched Powell videos. I would just watch future primitive and, and then animal chin. And I don't need to go see thrashing. Oh, animal chin. Search for it. Dude, I know, I know, I love it. Have you seen him? This subject came up very recently amongst jujitsu guys. I have a friend. No, no, no. I have a friend. His name is Craig, and he was a Wallows local. He oh, literally was a local. Yes. Here's the thing he'll tell you about Wallows. Craig will tell you that Wallows is about maybe a block long. Yeah. But if you watch it in Chin, you think it's miles. It's and like, Craig's like, no, I grew up in Oahu. I grew up skating. Right. Miles. It's a spot in Hawaii. It's a tiny it's little spot where they skate. It's a drainage ditch. You don't. See, and part of the thing is you don't see you see this part where they're skating it. And since you can't get to Hawaii, right. and there's no Internet. You can't see. You just create this idea in your head that it's this amazing thing. Right. <laughs> and according to it Craig, like, it's cool, but it isn't. Yeah. It's not this amazing right. thing. It's just, you know, the Powell camera guys did a great job. There are some skate places that are as cool as you think. Salem Park, the snake run at Salem Park in Vancouver, in North Vancouver, BC, is as cool as it is. Like, it is fantastic. Um, but I don't know. I haven't been to a lot of other ones that weren't a little bit disappointing. Okay. Hold on now. So, uh, do, do you know what animal, do you remember what Animal Chin's first name is? Yes. 
It's wonton. That is some racist <laughs> I shit. Know. And I feel bad for liking that movie now for thinking about that. It's like, oh God, how did uh, they get away with Doug that? Doug Lawless, a guy who also is going to be doing a show on this network, his uh, he has out on his Twitter. It's the thing that you read. It says it's important to remember that Animal Chin's first name is Wonton. <laughs> Oh my God! God bless the '80s. The things that you could get away with saying Man. in the '80s, dude. In when they introduce, by the way, this character named Long Duck, Duck. Dong in Sixteen Candles. The, there's a gong, and then throughout the movie, when you just see him, there's just a faint gong noise in the background. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I love it. It is part of joy of my life. It is, like... and that is a hero character in my mind. But here's the thing. This is probably what a Redskins fan feels like. Good point. Good point. I, You know, the first time Matt Matsuoka was the first... He loves 80s teen films. Oh, yes. He names songs after actresses in them. He loves it. And he was the first person to, to tell me that that was offensive. He's an Asian guy, right? And I, <laughs> I remember thinking, what? Like, I, the first time I heard... That was one of the one of those times in your life where you, we have to kind of reassess something that you care about so much. And man, look, when I see it now, I still go, <laughs> Long Duck Dong, the Donger. They end up calling yeah. him the Donger by the end of the movie. He is awesome. But it's offensive. It's very offensive. And the sad part is that's probably like a lot of people in middle America's first exposure. <laughs> to Asian people. Asian people. <laughs> I, I feel like. So true story. My wife's Filipina. And the first time we visited Spokane, I kind of had to prep her a little bit. I said, if anybody says anything horrifically stupid, please give them the benefit of the doubt. Because I went to a high school with like five African-American kids. How many miles from Seattle is Spokane? It's 300 miles east. So all you have to do is go 300 miles in from the side of the map and people are already idiots. You don't have to go that far. No, you don't. Actually, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there were people who could make the case that we wouldn't have to move outside of this room and I'm not talking about you. So. <laughs> you know, and I was just thinking that as I was walking up, my thought process when I was walking up to your door was like, I can deal with stupid and I can deal with indecisive. But when I have to deal with stupid and indecisive in the same person, I really get frustrated. Oh, wait, you were thinking as you were walking up to my house that you were going to have to deal with no, me being not about stupid you. and indecisive? Not about you. I was trying to figure something out and the guy was ah. being stupid and indecisive. And I was like, be one or the other. Be stupid or be indecisive. Oh, do you want to call out the business you were at? Uh, Let's not no. do it. We don't do, we don't do too much negative on the show. We try, no. to, and when we do, we try to laugh. Like when we do talk about horrible things and tragedy, we try to find a way to laugh about them, mm -hmm. even if it's inappropriate. <laughs> oh my god! You need that sample. You need to get that oh, sample, man. Oh, I don't know. I have to pay for that one. Do it in post. <laughs> um. So, uh, okay. How did we get there? Yeah, skateboarding. Skateboarding. Uh, so you got uh you got a Tony Hawk with Indies and OJ Streets. Yep. Probably ninety five A. Probably. And that's a real board. That's a real setup. Did you get good? No. I wrote a lot. Um there were certain tricks in skateboarding that weeded people out. Um mm -hmm. there were certain tricks that people just couldn't, you know, like the Ollie. If you couldn't Ollie, you're not getting too much farther. Mm hmm If you couldn't kick flip. You're not getting too much farther. Okay, so I didn't go much further than that because right. I've never landed a kickflip in my life. After the kickflip, and I can do kickflips, 
But after the kickflip, of it course, because you're five years younger than me, you could probably <laughs> kickflips probably made more sense to you than anything. What weeded me out was the impossibles. That was where I got weeded out. It was impossibles. <laughs> when people started doing all the impossibles, that was the weed out for me. Explain an all the impossible. So I could be wrong about this. It's been a while. But an all the impossible, I'm, I'm assuming the audience has a certain level of familiarity and knows what an ollie is. You pop whatever your back foot is on the tail at the same time, dragging your front foot up the top of the skateboard on the grip tape, lifting the board up in the air and then land. Nicely done. Griff. I like okay. That. I teach for a living. these days. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> An Ollie impossible is the same thing, but instead of keeping your back foot stationary on the board, what you do is you do sort of a circular motion with that back foot. And what that does is it causes the board to flip over your back foot. And if you keep the board, if you keep the foot on the board the whole time as it's flipping over, you'll land back on it. Now it's been a minute and I could be explaining that completely wrong, but I think I'm right. You know what? I, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. You'd watch an old Powell video, an old skate video, and there'd be a bunch of guys doing stuff that you could do. Or, you know, you might be, you're watching Lance Mountain. I could be that guy. That guy's awesome. And then you see Tony Hawk and or, or Caballero and you go... If I try really hard, I could maybe get somewhere in the realm of doing some of those things those guys are doing. And then you see the Rodney Mullen section and you go, you go, you, you, it's, you realize that you could paint your whole life. And you're never going to paint the, the Mona Lisa, right? You're right. watching, you're watching someone do stuff that it hurts your brain kind of to watch it, but it's amazing. And I felt like. When skateboarding became all about kickflips and impossibles and all the little things that were that were what we called freestyle, mm -hmm. it took away from me the skateboarding isn't about my my trajectory to become like Hawk or Cavalero. Everyone was on a trajectory to try to become like Rodney Mullen, and I just no, I didn't even want to try to do that. You know, have you ever read Rodney Mullen's book, The Mutts: How to Skateboard and Not Kill Yourself? No, you totally should. I'll loan it to you. I have it. Yeah, and I'll loan it to you because it's... well, he's he's incredible in the Powell documentary. I haven't seen that. Oh, dude, <laughs> he's so good. Bones Brigade. I have not watched the documentary. I ah. haven't. I'm gonna have to see this. Yeah, I would recommend anybody, even if you mm. don't care about skateboarding, if you think skateboarding is stupid, if you watch this Bones Brigade documentary, it, it, you will get pulled into it. Like it is fantastic. The things these kids went through. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, you read this book and you realize Mullen's a genius. He's done TED Talks now. I've, yeah. I've watched the TED Talks. And if you can get past his voice, because mm -hmm. his voice is weird. But if you can get oh, past yeah. Rodney's voice and listen to the stuff he's actually saying, you'll find yourself thinking, this man is a genius. He just happened to be expressing it on a small skateboard. He's cut from different cloth. Yeah, he's an original. There, there just aren't too many of those walking around. He's, he's definitely a special individual. But again, genius and decorum don't necessarily go all that well together. He's yeah, he's a big deal. Yeah. So, okay. You were able to do stuff that I wasn't able to do, but how, did you like, do you still skateboard? Like when was the last time you were on a skateboard? Um, probably about a year ago. I have a longboard in my trunk. Okay. Oh, you did that. You made that transition. Yeah. I can't do it. I got a regular old skateboard in my garage and I get it on every once in a while. Yeah. I have a longboard in the trunk. Um, I was managing for a while for, um, for a company called AT&T that some of you have probably heard of and <laughs> little uh, mom pop, <laughs> little mom pop shop. Um, they sell cell phones and stuff. And I was managing some call center reps and a lot of them 
were into skateboarding at the time and longboarding and you know i got i got the bug i went and got one and started riding we would do that on our breaks cool they loved being on my team <laughs> because i would go out and skateboard with them nice and i kept trying to tell them i'm like look this is not you know bullshit team building here this is like who i kind of am and when i've got skater kids on my team these are the people i kind of feel comfortable around so okay so going from going from bmx and getting into skateboarding and stuff at a young age was that accepted was it normal did all the kids there do it or were you because skateboarding and punk rock go hand in hand sometimes and what what is interesting to me is that you went from being self-described like normal kid Mm -hmm. to being involved in something that this thinnest slice of people got involved in so i'm interested in knowing how that happens that's actually a really easy question okay thrasher magazine because of skateboarding because of skateboarding thrasher magazine was the skateboarding magazine at the time that was run by punks yeah it was based out of san francisco and it was definitely run by punks and to be honest when i'm reading this and i'm 10 years old i'm not getting most of these references I'd like to go back now and read some of those like 1985, 86 issues of Thrasher and see They're incredible. if it makes more sense So what's sense the now. first punk rock thing in Thrasher that you remember? Um, I remember the skate rock tapes. JFA, <laughs> Big Boys. Uh-huh. Um, Drunk Engines. Black Athletes. Talk about it. Yeah. Terrible <laughs> you know, horribly racist I names. I people that, that, that I love, absolutely adore a band called The Drunk Engines, but The Drunk Engines are Awesome. Oh, yes, they were good. Agent Orange, you know, I mean, other things. That... Agent... Bill Baker and I had a conversation for like an hour about Agent Orange the other night. Love Agent Orange. Wow. <laughs> Unfortunately, the bass player died not too long ago. I like did not hear year. that. Yeah. Year ago. Um, you know, it was, I've, I've started playing guitar again recently just kind of for fun. And I was actually playing Everything Turns Gray earlier today. Nice. Okay. That's like, a yeah. great Agent Orange song. You, you guys can check out all these bands we're mentioning on YouTube or Go to the blog for this episode, and I'll have linked all of these bands to uh, different videos on YouTube. You can check it out. Nice. Um, and you can go, like, why would anyone listen to a band called The Drunk Engines? And you can find out. You'll find out why, because they're great. You'll be like, well, they must not be that bad. Jello put out a retrospective of their music on Alternative Tentacles, so apparently they're not, you know, awful people. <laughs> See, there used to be this kind of thread of, like, sarcasm that people used to do in, in punk rock, and... I mean, maybe they still do. I'm, I'm not really qualified to talk about it because, like, I don't pay as much attention as I should. But there used to be this thing of, like, let's name our band Reagan Youth and let's write lyrics that are just horribly sarcastic and offensive if you read this wrong. But what we're really doing is we're calling out this whole structure. Right. You know, a band called the Dead Kennedys that wrote songs about, you know, let's lynch the landlord and whatnot. I mean... These guys aren't serious. With a guy who named himself Jello Biafra. And just look at the, look, go ahead and look up the background on that name. Absolutely. Where that comes from. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we are oh, old. Okay. So you're telling me that you discovered punk rock on your own through Thrasher Magazine. You were getting Thrasher Magazine at the skate shop? Um, Actually, skate shop, but there was also a Circle K by my house that used to stock it for some reason. Probably because oh, I bought it. It's impressive. Um, some of the neighborhood kids used to buy it. I mean, we had a hardcore of probably 20, 25 skateboarder kids in my little housing subdivision in Spokane. Okay. It's called Northwest Terrace. And there were probably 20, 25 of us down there that were skaters. And we were trying as hard as we could to kind of be like what we saw on Thrasher, what we saw okay. on the Bones Brigade videos. Right. 
and I cringe thinking of what the photos of us might have looked like at that so, point. So you were probably a lot of Dagla. So you were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you guys were all kind of rising into this together. You didn't have one kid who was more of a punk and he didn't really skateboard, but he was like, no, no, you got to listen to Black Flag, or you didn't no. have, you didn't, you never knew that guy. No. Okay, so that's this is different because most most of the conversations I've had something like that comes in. Um, there weren't really any older kids. There weren't. It was like a bunch of us that were. So all, you formed your own foundation of it. You guys were discovering this stuff as you went. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I can't, there were kids that were maybe a year or so older, but nobody who was that guy. So, okay. So happen. when you heard, so, okay. Prior to hearing punk rock music and accepting it as something that you liked the sound of, mm-hmm. did you, what kind of music did you listen to? Well, that's interesting. Um, Beatles, huge Beatles fan. Still am. Um, as a little kid, you, you gravitated towards the Beatles. Absolutely. And I actually don't think that is a bad foundation for getting into the kind no, of stuff. That you listen to. No, I mean, one of the first, I think the first record I ever bought with my own money was probably Sergeant Pepper. Okay. Um, my dad was in the air force when, um, the sixties were happening and he was an old folk music fan. So I was exposed to like Woody Guthrie, uh, Arlo Guthrie, Pete Seeger, uh, Weavers, all this stuff at a very early age. And your parents were cool with music. Um, my mom, kind of likes music now but like the whole time i was growing up she didn't like music it wasn't like she didn't like my music she just didn't like music okay it wasn't like a like religious damage no 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 no. it wasn't religious damage at all just i think what happened was like her hearing finally started to go a little bit and then she could actually appreciate it i think music just bugged her like in general i think she just didn't like it because i mean it wasn't Oh, you can only listen to this it was like she just right they weren't worried but you didn't have parents who were worried about what kind of messages you might be getting no you had to have friends that were like that Oh, I had plenty of friends who had those parents. Okay. But for the most part, I'm getting, I get it. Cause like, you're the guy that those kids met. You, you <laughs> yeah. probably turned on kids to, to music and turn, you know, like, well, and I've always them. been pretty open-minded. You were the it. guy that said you should listen to black flag. Probably. Yeah. Could have been, could have been. Okay. Um, the one thing that was cool that I will say for my parents, when I started going to punk rock shows, my dad actually went to a couple to check them out because mm. he had no idea what, no frame of reference. I mean, this is, you know, Air Force pilot from. Okay. You know, All right. Well, but this, and this is an important question. So your dad took you, would have gone with you to your first punk rock show. No, he didn't go to the first one, but he went to like three and four. Oh, okay. So what was that first one? Um, okay. So the first one didn't actually happen. It got That's, shut down. Okay. Before the band's play. And there's a Dave Larson connection. Oh, you ready for this? No way. Okay. So Grotto. Spokane, Washington. Um, this would have been 1990. Um, a band called All, who were ex-Descendants. And I was a big Descendants fan. Trust yeah. me, I was a huge Descendants fan. Um, a criminally underrated band from that same era were opening for them called Big Drill Car. Uh-huh. Who, you know, had at least a few really awesome hits. They were kind of rock, but they were great. And then um, a band that ended up changing their name. Um, the time I believe because they weren't a straight edge band and they sure sounded like one from this Spokane is incredible. called I, take charge. That was going to be your first show. It was. And then the cops showed up and shut the whole thing down. Okay. So take charge mm-hmm. was, uh, Tyler long who has done a bunch of music since, but he moved to Spokane with some friends mm-hmm. and he was the guy I knew mainly. Uh, and they started a band called take charge. And if I remember right, 
everyone was like, take charge. And this was the era of like, there yeah. was the big boom of like, you know, like in Bellingham, his friends were in a band called First Step. First Step, take charge, brotherhood. Refu- right. It's, I mean, this it sounds straight edge. And then you see their sticker and it's like a duck with like a Rasta hat and a joint. It's oh like, yeah, those guys wait were a huge minute. stoners. What, is, that, is charge a drug in Spokane? Are they saying to take charge? So yes, they changed their name to Water Street. Right. And it was, I got their demo. And it was one of the weirdest sounding things. Like, I thought they were such a cool band, but it was just, I mean, the, the vocalist who you yeah, may have known had Jim like Speaker. a very, uh-huh. very interesting vocal style. And and I remember thinking, that in this demo, there's a very cool 7-inch, and I don't care. I want to put this out as my second record. So yeah, I put out Water Street as mm-hmm. the second record on Excursion Records. That was actually the first local record in Spokane I ever bought. I didn't know who you were. I didn't know who Excursion Records were, <laughs> nice. but I knew who Water Street were. And I loved them. I mean, they had kind of a little bit of a soul side Fugazi kind of thing yeah. with this very distinctive singer. And you know what? Once we get off air, that guy's actually got those tracks up on his website. Excellent. Oh, so yeah. yeah. We can so link, it. link it to it. Yeah. Jim Speaker, the old singer. Right. We can link that. I know where it's at. Excellent. Excellent. All now, four of those songs. Now, see, I really loved that era, that time frame when mm-hmm. when music was just weird all over the place. Because oh, yeah, yeah, some of it was like, oh, I'm like, I don't want to sit through this. But then you'd find these gems, and mm-hmm. some of that weird infused the normal. Mm-hmm. So the normal would get pulled towards the weird more than the weird would get pulled towards the normal. Everybody didn't sound like don't don't you know the exact yeah. same thing, you know. And then a band in that world, a band could come along and just blow everybody's minds and change everything. And you'd see that with the three examples I always use of the three bands that really changed like musicians that I knew. And it's all really in a pretty short period of time, but they were like game changers. Were Integrity, okay, Drive Like Jehu, oh geez, yes, and, <laughs> and Jawbreaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all kind of in the same time frame, but like people would just. Then all of a sudden there were bands that were like, oh, they've kind of got that Drive Like Jehu thing, right? Or like within hardcore, like yeah. integrity kind of changes the game for They a were that band music. that came along and like all of a sudden within a year, there's five bands that you know that sound like that. Yeah. That's, God, I could go on about that because I'm having like a friend of mine um, going to her in, in a minute. We're talking about starting a a 90s kind of like early 90s, late 80s kind of like metalcore thing and the name Ooh. of the band you're going to laugh one truth yo you want to call it one truth yo the yo is important but you remember that era where everybody had to sound like that for a minute there was an era where like everybody was strife (laughs) undertow unbroken all of those bands those bands don't all sound exactly the same they don't all sound very cool i would say that the people in those bands though were all influenced by the bands i'm talking about right um so basically you know and to to your point, the third show I ever saw, Peaceful Valley Community Center, Spokane, Washington, um, a band that went on to be incredibly like some of the biggest rock stars on the planet. But this was 1990, and they're playing in front of 25 people on a Tuesday night. Uh, they're called Green Day. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the third show I ever saw. Seriously, Green they were Day kids. 1990. I was 14. Uh, Those kids were 16. Was 39 Smooth 39 out? Smooth was just out. And by the way. It's called 39 Smooth. Yeah, not 1039 Smoothed Out Slappy Hours. That's a compilation. That's a compilation. Uh-huh. We're fist bumping now. Absolutely. You're the kind of guy that fixates on the same stupid crap that I do. Yeah, I do. It's like, get it right. It's like, you know, the first Fugazi thing is not called 10 songs or 12 songs or whatever. 13 songs. 13 songs. No, it's not. It's a, there's a Fugazi 12 inch and then there's a thing called Margin Walker. Absolutely. Which no one remembers. (laughs) No one remembers because they have the CD, which is 13 13 songs. songs. (laughs) Um, 
It's like, God, guys, this stuff. I mean, you have this thing in your pocket now. Everybody's got a smartphone. You can Google this. If you want to get it right, you can just Google this and it's easy. <sighs> anyway, but yeah. they. I, I remember, I remember uh, when the internet was just starting to take hold. <laughs> when, <laughs> I remember when, when there wasn't one. Well, you know, or at mean, least when there were starting to be like databases would, and people could... People right. could um, actually like go find out about bands because there was a place that had information about a bunch of bands. I remember talking to someone and they were working at a place that had a bunch of information about a bunch of music. I'm not going to say their name or the place they worked for, but they had a thing about Fugazi and they had 13 songs listed as the band's first release. And I wrote them a th- like an email that said, you got to fix this. It's th- this is the this is the you know, and. I never heard anything. No, I, I, no. I, was just, I was just being an annoying, you know, weirdo. But that is the kind of thing that, like, that was no. That's the CD compilation. Yeah. So thirty nine smooth. Thirty nine smooth. So the thousand hour or the um the seven inch the thousand hour seven inch was already out. They had thousand hours out, mm-hmm. and um they had the other one that was on um skiing out of Minneapolis. That was slappy. slappy. Right. They also had their first night of production of Green Day socks. Like they had screened some socks. They had gotten some screen. <laughs> People used to like actually silk screen their own stuff <laughs> they'd buy t-shirts for whatever they could buy them well, I from think, i think that still happens i actually. hope that still happens you know what i actually think people might have even more access to that now. i really hope so because you go to vera project they've got like silk screen stuff I and think, again I you think... can go to a place like vera project and learn how that works i mean god we won we won Let's i call love it, what it is. we won you know what griff i like that take on it i like we won i like it when you can go <laughs> we won and have that be bigger than the Fuck these kids. They don't no. know what it was like. No, no, we won. That's that's how I see it right now. I mean, and we can go into this later, but part of the reason, like, I haven't been around for the last 10 years. Okay, so you know what? We won. I agree. But that's also why I think that shit like Broken Side and weird rap punk screamo whatever. Like, have you ever seen some of this real garbage music that's out right now that come that you can you definitely can draw a line from where we come from, but it's like give me some names because I'm really out of this at this point. Okay, I there are music videos that make me want to go fight, and I'm not that guy. Uh, hold on, I'm gonna okay. pause. Okay. Okay, we're back. I I was trying to find the name of this band, like Broken Side. Look, I'm gonna link Broken Side. You're gonna be able to hear it. I apologize for what it's going to do to you if you pay any attention to it at all but any band like that or worse any band where you've got a guy with tattoos who's kind of rap singing to supposedly hardcore music and he's ghost riding his whip like dancing along with his car and that's supposed to be some offshoot of what we did no no so these are people who really like the transplants and thought that was a good idea then transplants is like totally legit compared to this they have that singer who can only kind of do one thing that was kind of what I think of when you say like kind of rap along. I'm like, no, they're just, they're just bullshit rock stars. It's like the, the hardcore emo core equivalent of fucking of, of the worst hair metal. Of <laughs> well, you knew we were going to get to that at some point. I mean, we got to get just, so anyway, we're off on a, we're off on a tangent here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but cause we're going to, we're going to stay with you. Okay. Um, cause I want to know how hair metal affects you, but I have a couple, I always have a couple questions about, people when they're young okay i want to know about fights huh like like fist fights yeah were you a fighter um interestingly the entire like seventh and eighth grade junior high i guess that's kind of where my outlook really changed that's where punk rock started making a lot more sense 
because I was kind of a weird mouthy kid. Um, I was attending Salk junior high in Spokane and being blunt, the place was a shithole and I got picked on quite a bit. You were getting picked on. Oh, absolutely. I was. What kind of, what kind of people were picking on you? Um, for the most part, people who liked hair metal. Uh, metal dudes are picking metal on Metal dudes. You. Metal dudes to a certain extent jocks, but like the really bad bullies. In what year Spokane. are we talking? What years are we talking about? Let's see here. Um, I started high school in 89, so it would have been like 87 and 88. See there. So maybe Spokane wasn't like this, but there was a little bit of a natural alliance between like punk and metal dudes that didn't always work. And we've talked about that on this show because there were always some metal dudes that didn't like skaters, didn't like punk rockers. Right. But jocks were usually so bad at that time that it, because this is pre-Lollapalooza, so they didn't decide they liked our music yet. (laughs) I wasn't one of the cool kids. That's, I mean, there were cool kids skateboarders. I wasn't one of them. There were skateboarders that had like hair flaps and listened to Metallica and like managed to move seamlessly between the two worlds, you know, hair flaps, you know, like squeebs, the the Tony Hawk hair. Yeah. So my hairstyle. Is that what you got going on? I did. I thought it was no back back in the day. I was like, I just, I see a lot of hair. I don't necessarily see a flap. So you would have looked down on me back then. You would have been Um, like that. No. No, because I I was a nerd dude. We would have been bros. I would have been bros. We would have been bros. You know, and honestly, it was like I was listening to the punk rock stuff, but I was also listening to, I mean, Justice for All had just come out, and that mm. wasn't a bad record. I was really into Anthrax and DRI. Crossover. Remember Crossover? Yeah, Crossover yeah. was probably what I was listening to a lot of at that DRI point. DRI comes up in almost every podcast. There's another one of those bands that, like, probably never made a lot of money, but boy, did they ever. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what a very recognizable, catchy logo can do for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that Slam Man, holy God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just genius right there if you're starting a band kids take this from me get a logo jawbreaker did this dri did this these are iconic logos. i'll bet more people knew the uh corrosion of conformity spiky yeah, skull spiky than had ever heard corrosion skull. of conformity right i mean who who actually heard them you just got the patch or the t-shirt and you threw it on <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's that's totally the best advice i can give young musicians is like get a logo and a catchy name Worry about the rest of it later. I mean, Broken Side, they're halfway there. They got a catchy name. It's no. I've never heard these guys. Okay. I'll listen to them after we're done. I've never heard these guys. I, I don't know. For Hold all on. I know, you know what I want to do? What do you want to do? Here's what I'm going to do. Guys, we're going to pause this. I'm going to show Griff the Broken Side video, and then I'm going to press play. I'm going to ask him not to respond in any way, and then I'm going to have his response to like the first 30 seconds of the video. We'll go to the chorus, okay. if you can call it a chorus. So we're going to do that right now. Sounds good. We just watched most of the video for the song Freaks by Broken Side. Griff? Well, it's awful. It's, it's fucking shit-tastic. But I'm not sure if I heard that on the radio. And I haven't listened to the radio in a while, so I have no idea if I would hear that on the radio, if there's even such a thing. But I wouldn't have made the connection of that being a punk rock band. Oh, I, would, I don't think I, I would hear that. And I would think um, that's like that LMAFO or whatever. That's what that reminds me of. That's, I don't see where this is a punk thing. I, I, well, no. clearly it's not an actual punk thing, but they're they're. I mean, they're what? It's got the screaming and the hair. And I mean, you look at the thing. They definitely are. The, that's unfortunately they probably listened to Blood Brothers when they were in grade school. Or that hell. would be an interesting question. I mean, because I, I see that and I don't I don't see. I mean, I'm hearing the, you know, the screamo like background vocals, but so how does that even make it into music? Like that's, that doesn't make any sense. 
that could be just some shit that the the, the producer, because I'm willing to bet those kids have a producer sitting around somewhere, said, you need this on your record. Yeah. I don't think that there's, I think you've thought about this a lot more than I have. I I listened to that. I I saw the video, like when it was out, like when, like some MTV thing or something like through the channels and was just, I think I dropped the controller and just stared at the screen and just thought, (laughs) and thought I should book a flight to go start a fight with these guys. Oh God. And then it's every time I see stuff like that, where it's like, if I see something like that and I just see awful message that comes through and the fact that it could be catchy and it could inspire some kid to want to be like that and i think did any part of that come from the years that we worked to put on shows and to do cool things did is this part of the the result because if so maybe i just want to burn it all down (laughs) you know i totally understand that sentiment i get it i get it but even if the producer is a former member of the Blood Brothers, let's just say, <laughs> since that came up. Well, I love those guys. It's, it's yeah. not even fair. If, if Cody Vadalato produced that record, you know, and, you know, no, no diss, Cody. Love you. But if that turns out to be the case, does that invalidate all of the other cool stuff that happened? You can't no, it control doesn't. the art it once it leaves. I, I mean, know, you just can't. I know. The experiment it once it gets out of the lab, right? It goes out of the lab. We don't have control of it anymore. Yeah. Okay. The fact that it's penetrated the culture at that level that some, you know, asshole cooked well, out producer. Sure there and I really hope it ch- wasn't Cody, if that's the case. No, and I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there are just many people who thought that stuff like Jackass was that bad. Although I didn't think it was that bad. No, I didn't think Jackass was that bad at all, actually. <laughs> Maybe it was because I was hanging out with Matt all the time. Yeah, yeah, Matt. Matt was doing Ultra Matt for a while. Right, right. Inspired by those jackass guys. I, I participated in a um, "Let's Eat Shots of Really Awful Stuff" contest for one of those episodes. You were in Hurlfest. I was. Hurlfest Hurl Part One. I think I, believe, I won. Is online. I think I won. It wasn't Colin that won. Um, I don't remember who the first one out was, but I remember <laughs> I was right there at the end. <laughs> okay, so Matt. For a brief period of time, Matt Matsuoka, we're back with him, talking about him now, was going to do a a video series called Ultramat, and it was going to be a lot of stunts and crazy stuff. And we were we actually went into like production mode for a while. We filmed him jumping through a flaming table in my backyard, if you remember. I remember that. Uh, we were doing, and this was right before some things went a little weird. So this thing only went so far before he he started. Okay, he went from doing this with a group of friends in at places yeah to filming most of the stuff in the middle of the night in his apartment by himself so he was shooting himself with stuff and like he breaks a light bulb with his head oh my god i remember Have you seen any of that stuff um yeah i remember <laughs> talking him out of some stuff um my wife has a background in pre-med mm-hmm. and um she talked him out of jumping into a bathtub full of light bulbs he I'm wanted glad, to do that. I'm glad he he did because I went over to his house and just like shot him with the dark gun. Right. <laughs> I would. I don't think I would have been cool with is those that light there's bulbs. trace amounts of arsenic in light bulbs. Oh. And if you jump into an entire bathtub full of them and get yourself that much glass in yourself, there's a non-zero chance it could kill you. Oh, a non-zero meaning there is some chance. There is some chance. Okay. That that could kill you. I like that non-zero chance. It's a phrase I use a lot these days. That's good. Yeah, okay. You're welcome to it. Right. He did. Uh, I think instead he just blew a giant fireball in his bathroom. Yeah, and that was frequent. I remember that. <laughs> I've seen three or four versions of that clip with the fireball. 
Because that was when we were playing together. I mean, we were still playing music at that point. So that was literally the first show I played with those guys was the Capitol Hill Block Party. I'd been in the band two weeks. Oh. And (laughs) Matt was really worried about how this was going to go because we had a guitar player who was really not on the ball at all. Yeah. And I was just learning those songs. So Matt decided to make sure absolutely no one remembered any potential musical screw-ups by setting off an entire string of black hats (laughs) around his neck, like on his chest. That video is epic. We're playing the song Scene Kill, and when he lights it up, literally it looks like he's being shot. Like he's jumping backwards because all these firecrackers going off on his chest. He did a lot of stuff like that. He did. Okay, so let's we'll, we'll get we'll get out of the childhood in a minute. We'll come back. Okay, we'll come up on. into this stuff. But so you fought a lot. You got in a lot of fist fights. Oh yeah, you lots. fight at school. Um, for the most part, did you get kicked out of school? Tried. But, but, I mean, what happened if you fought at school? Did teachers come out, or did you guys just finish the fights and no one? Um, knew? for the most part, I got beat up. It wasn't really until like midway through seventh grade that I even started fighting back, because okay. like I was convinced that like why are they doing this to me? I just didn't understand it, and then. Like, midway through seventh grade, there was this kid, um, Eric Saltrup, who'd been fucking with me for the entire year. And finally, in the locker room, PE class, I just kind of lost it on him and beat the shit out of him in there. But the problem is... Well, that should have actually ended it, right? No. It ended it with him. Hey, uh, so you guys were friends after no, that, right? Then you get... No, we were never Oh, you friends. didn't do it? Because a lot of people, the guy they fought nope. ended up being their buddy. I have a Facebook friend request from that asshole. It's been sitting there for five years. Okay, Fuck so him. on his side... Yeah, he stopped fucking with me, but like the rest of them didn't, you know? Wow. So then you, that's weird. Okay. I guess Spokane, just a little different. It is. It is. So then you became another person that they could fight on the. Yeah, basically I I just, now I'm fighting back. So I'm more fun. Um, I literally tried to take up smoking cigarettes in hopes they'd kick me out. I lit one up in front of the vice principal of that junior high, figuring I would force the issue. He wouldn't have a choice. Here I am lighting a cigarette on school property. Fuck you. Here, cigarette. Throw me out, motherfucker. And they didn't? Nope. Why? Because he knew what I was trying to do. I forget what I did, but it was about two weeks later I managed to get myself kicked out of that school. And I forget how I actually did it, but I remember lighting up a cigarette in front of the guy. (laughs) I couldn't even smoke at the time. I mean, I I smoked later, but man, I couldn't at that point. I was in eighth grade. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm saying, yeah, see, I'm cool. I'm smoking. Kick me out. And he was just like, yeah, I'm not falling for it. He's like, fuck you. Oh, she? It was a he. Oh, okay. Brad Lundstrom. Nope. Um, so yeah, Name basically names. I ended up getting booted from salt, transferred to Glover. There were some, some skater kids that I was kind of on better terms with mm-hmm. down there. So the last like couple months of junior high, I managed to finally get kicked out of that school and I'd been trying for a while because I hated it so right. bad. Junior high is one of the worst ideas we've ever had yeah. as a culture. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's up there. Well, so maybe you have to have that. Well, it definitely causes sort of a sorting out effect. You know how in the movie The Matrix they say that they made a perfect Matrix and, and no then one believed it. no one believed it, so it didn't work. Maybe, yeah. maybe without junior high, you don't have a short period of time where everyone's just a stupid asshole. Oh yes, that's just <laughs> seriously. Can we skip that part? Can we go from sixth grade to high school? I don't think. You can, well, then high school becomes the, the stupid asshole. I mean, it, yeah, it, it already is bad somewhere. enough. It already is bad enough. See, the funny part is like my memories of high school are nowhere near as bad as a lot of people's. It's not, I'm not one of those like best years of your life kind of people, but so I graduated, if you can call it that from junior high, um, went to North central high school in Spokane. Now there's older kids. Now there's punk rockers. Now there's people who, you know, have their shit together a little more and can kind of point you in the right direction on stuff. Um, (laughs) there were enough 
older kids and enough weird skater freak weirdo types that it took us about six months to all really find each other in terms of like clicking up. And then next thing you know, we're a gang. Yeah. Not in that same traditional sense of like we have colors or anything like that, but fuck with one of us. You fuck with all of us. Right. It's a, it's a group of guys who have each other. Now we can all stick up for each other. And there wasn't some, and I always tell people this about Spokane, like we didn't have a scene for any one particular style of music because we never had enough kids to do it. Sure. There wasn't a straight edge scene in Spokane. Right. There was a straight edge band. They were called Deadlock. I mean, that was later, yeah. but there was Deadlock and they would come to all the same shows and they would play the shows and nobody thought that was weird. They're just straight edge. That's what they do. Yeah. And that's the one thing about small towns. It's kind of nice. You kind of learn this weird tolerance, especially when you're a weirdo in a small town. Yeah. Because you learn to be tolerant of the other weirdos who are not like you, but they're weirdos and you can relate on that level. And it's, it has a bad side and it has a good side. Right. So the good side is, is that you learn these levels of tolerance that everyone basically needs to have to be a good, you know, an adult that isn't trying to do stuff like defensive marriage acts and bullshit like that. Right. <laughs> right. But some of the weirdos, not many, but you always end up associating with someone who is way over the line in ways that aren't cool. And needs to be called on their shit. Well, it's really hard to do that. Either, either is a yeah is is crazy violent or Mm -hmm. crazy bad with women or you know like there's there's you end up associating with that and maybe that's part of the lesson learning that happens there and it's tough when you are that person like you oh don't that sounds confusing okay so it sounds like you were saying it's tough when you are the bad person in the group of weirdos so it's tough when you know the bad person hmm and you can kind of understand why the bad person is the bad person, but that doesn't excuse it. Right. You get it. You understand this person has this horrifically fucked up upbringing. You know why they are what they are. And the one thing that like, the one thing that Spokane had that I don't know if was ever as big a deal in Bellingham. I know it wasn't really over here. There was some nasty incidents for a while, but we had the Aryan nations right across the state line. Right. We didn't have as much of that. Just a little. Every fucking summer, those guys used to show up and they would have something called Aryan Youth Assembly and we could guarantee some really good fights at the shows. Wow. And we had, we had for the most part, a handful of white power kids in high school the entire time I was there. We had a handful of white power kids and I knew a couple of them. And sadly, I knew a couple of them before they decided they were going that way. Right. And it's really... It's really fucking depressing when you see this guy that you know is smarter than this, you know, is not anywhere near as much of an asshole as you would need to be. Sure. And you find yourself like, if we live in Spokane, dude, how the fuck do you hate Jews? You don't even know a Jew. Yeah. yeah I mean, look around. Who's Jewish in this high school? Yeah. What idiot, what idiot stocked screwdriver at the record store this week? Yeah. So that these guys actually <laughs> got like... these screwdriver records. Yeah. Now they're yeah. Listening. Oh, wait, here's our whole, all hail the new dawn. <laughs> I only listened to the first screwdriver album. Well, you're only that much of an asshole then. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, I hate that argument. I really hate that. Yeah. But like I said, it was, we all kind of found each other and from then on high school was actually kind of fun. And I find myself like feeling weird about saying that, but I almost got all the shit out of the way in junior high, no, all the that's, alienation, that's all fine. the fucking miserable in that's junior good. high. I think that's, th- that's part of the purpose of it. It's but nice I mean, if that can happen. I was skateboarding. I was going to, I was going to shows. There were a lot of shows. Um, Peaceful Valley community center 
was doing a lot of shows. There was Club Pompeii in Spokane. Were you were you playing music? Um, I was trying to. I was okay. trying to play guitar. You're teaching yourself. I was, to play I was guitar? not very good. I was trying to teach myself to play guitar. Things that I realized that years later is that the metal kids were right, and that you have to basically sit around by yourself for a while and learn all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Don't just learn four chords and think you're going to start a band. Don't do that. Kids, again, more good advice. Woodshed. Practice. Practice a whole bunch. It's not fun. <laughs> the it's metal boring. kids were right. The metal kids were right about this. All those kids never wanted to start bands because they never thought they were good enough. And for the most part, they were wrong. But Oh, they were. They would have been in great hardcore bands they if they could have been happy to be playing that music. But they weren't. They all wanted to be Steve Vai. Yeah. And there's only like a handful <laughs> of those. They couldn't handle being in a hardcore band. They wanted to be, you know, playing fucking, you know, They all warfare. wanted to be Rodney Mullen. Right. And we all wanted to be... Lance Mountain. Lance Mountain is hardcore. Right. Okay. All right. In this analogy. Yeah. And that works. That totally that works. Call back an to what we talked about earlier. Bingo. All right. So, so, so metal kick flippers. Basically the metal kids were the kick flips freestyle skateboarder <laughs> kids. And the, you know, Lance Mountain was kind of the Ramones to a certain extent, but the band that really kicked it for me, like I said earlier, that made me realize that like, Hey, you can do this was green day because you know, here they are 16 and they're on tour. They're these young-ass kids playing these incredible songs. And let me tell you something. They were mm-hmm. so good back then. Fuck, well, yes, they were. <laughs> they were so I had never good. seen anything like that. They were oh. 16, long hair. I didn't see them on that tour. I saw them a couple years later, but God, they were good. I saw uh-huh. them between, be, be, right before Kerplunk, and it was awesome. Oh, yeah. Awesome. They just kept getting... Did you see them when... And I saw them when they had their first drummer. And their first drummer was not as good as Trey. I mean, when they got Trey Cool in that band, that was when things just were like, oh, my... Uh, they played like half the shows on that tour and then about half of them got shut down for overcapacity. Right. I, I remember because I wanted to go see them in the Tri-Cities. I wanted to go see them in Richland because they were playing with Sam I Am and I'd always wanted to see Sam I Am. I've still never seen them, but I wanted to see Sam I Am and I was like, nah, they're playing in Spokane. It'll be fine. And then they got shut down. It was like, ah, seriously, we had like 700 people in a venue that had the capacity of three. The, the, I don't know if it was the best time I ever saw them play. But I saw Green Day play uh, basically what was like a secret show on Valentine's Day at Gilman Street. Oh, my. And this was 1990. I think it was Valentine's Day 1991, but it might have been Valentine's Day 1992. (laughs) We were down there for something else. And it was like when we got into town. uh, Oh, there's there's a show at Gilman tonight. Oh, it's Green Day at Gilman tonight. <laughs> and I think that they might have been, it, it might have been a sweet thing where it was a, a fake name or something. I don't remember what it was, but it was super cool. And the thing is, for those of you guys who have not been listening to Green Day <laughs> since you were like little kids, <laughs> the whole concept of them having any political opinions whatsoever came along much later. They were not a political band. They were writing <laughs> like love songs. love songs and alienated weird kid songs. I'll stand, those first two Green Day records are awesome. Kerplunk is fucking great yes <laughs> listen yeah. to that yeah. and you're like Whoa. i was a straight edge kid listening to him sing about getting high and i was loving it right but it was like this these are great songs i don't even care yeah <laughs> i i was i was a huge fan and like i didn't know what they were talking about about half that stuff but because you know well i've never been a straight edge kid i for the most part didn't really indulge in a whole lot of that and the slang kind of went over my head yeah so i didn't have any idea what they were talking about on those first couple <laughs> records so yeah, it's it's really that was the perfect band for Valentine's Day. Yeah, it was. Oh cool. my, it was really, really <laughs> that would have been. It amazing. was really cool. Babies got made that night. Mm. Um, <laughs> Just saying. Uh, yeah, and then you probably lived with some of them many years later. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah. Okay. So that's so you started playing. Now, what were your what were your first attempts at being in bands? Um, let's see here. So I was in a band with um, I was in a band with a guy named um, Jeff Talley, who was in about half the bands in Spokane at one point. Um, he's he's a walking contradiction. He's a good guy. Um, he was a African American skinhead who tended more towards the oi side of things. Yeah. He was very into oi music at one point. He played every instrument reasonably well. He was very musical. He was in a band called the Dry Heaves, who are legendary. Anybody in Spokane is going to hear this. They're going to be like, oh my God, he just brought up the Dry Heaves. <laughs> um, played with him and a guy named Ryan. And um, we were working on kind of more of a hardcore thing after our first attempts at like, you know, kind of sloppy punk rock. I remember the name of the project was called Treason at the time. And then somebody pointed out that there was one of those. Because <laughs> you know, when you're 16, you think everything's original. Right. Um, I had played with, um, a guy named Kevin, Kevin went, who I think is in Portland now. Um, he was in most of the really cool bands in Spokane at one point. He was in a band called tree swing who were phenomenal. He was in a band called Milltown who were even more phenomenal. Um, featuring a guy who apparently played guitar for shelter real briefly, I guess. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jason Leon was the dude's name. Wait. Okay. You know, Jason Leon was also in, uh, better off. He was in Better Off. Yeah. You know, Better Off. I remember them because the guy from Better Off, the drummer, Tim Absalonson, went to my high school. And he ended up playing guitar in a band called The Makers later. Oh, right. And Jason was here for a while. I don't know if he's over there now, but he was in Seattle for a while. Huh. Yeah, I know he was over here for a minute, but I think that was a really long time ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like before <laughs> our bu- before we talked on the bus. <laughs> right. That was like 20 years ago. Yes, yeah, so there was there was that. There were some, some kind of cool <laughs> bands starting to happen and... For the most part, like all of these people were were pretty good musicians for, you know, where we were. So I was kind of trying to figure it out how this should work. And I was always, you know, like more enthusiastic than talented. I've, I've been one of those people that's like convinced that you can work hard enough and make this work, even if you're not necessarily like the greatest musician. And if you're playing bass, that's almost true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're playing drums, that's nah. You don't have to be a great drummer to get a lot of work. But if you're trying to play guitar and sing, you really kind of have to have something. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you really have to have that that X factor that takes you there. Um, so yeah, I was doing that. Um, played in several bands with a guy named Micah Prim, who was uh, another one of those neighborhood skateboarder kids that yeah. I referenced earlier. Um, we were both kind of getting into punk rock at about the same time. He was one of the first kids I remember, besides Kevin and all those guys, being like really into like kind of the second wave of, I know this isn't really the second wave, but it's kind of how I think of it. The evolution records kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He was one of the first people I knew who was really into that as yeah. far as that went. So we were playing stuff that kind of sounded a little bit like Sawhorse, kind of had that sort of not bad real edge to it. And then well, um, what was the first band that you actually played shows in front of people? Um, <laughs> well, we were called 10% birthday. How emo is that? Ten percent birthday. I believe so. Yes, that was emo as fuck. We opened for. Um, let me see here. I want to say we opened either for. I think it was Kerosene Four Fifty Four. At one point, there was a guy who knew all those bands in Spokane. We played about five shows, mostly house shows. Um, I think we might have played the old Big Dipper, the bar, that you know <laughs> didn't seem to card anybody ever. 
I, I, I don't think I ever went in that place when I was overage, but I never really okay. was, I've never been much of a drinker, so I didn't, I'm not the guy you have to worry about. Yeah. If I'm the underage kid in your place, I'm not the one who's going to be <laughs> fucking up. <laughs> I just want to sit in the corner and watch the band. I don't sure. give a shit about drinking. I'm not trying to get drunk. I'm just trying to watch this band play. So I'm not the kid you really had to worry about. And if the cops show up checking IDs, I know enough to get the hell out. Right. You know, so. just trying to lay low and check on Yeah, music. I just want to see bands, really. So how long were you in bands in Spokane before you, before you bailed for Seattle? Um, and what was, caused, what caused the bail to Seattle? Most of the people who are somewhat ambitious have tried that at some point to get away from Spokane and move out. Yeah. There's a joke about it being a curse that we're all going to move back. Sicko actually did reference that on one of their songs. Oh, well, it's the, Bellingham. I mean, there's a Bellingham curse. People move back to Bellingham. Right. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Spokane's got the same thing, huh? Yeah. I was, uh, I was dating a girl who had just graduated, um, from high school. We started dating when I was uh, 17, she's 16 and she graduated and got accepted to UW psychology program. So we moved over here. Oh, okay. And that lasted love pretty much (laughs) that lasted right about till the time we had that bus conversation. Oh, okay. Which is kind of why I didn't really feel like going home because I'm coming back to this apartment that we're trying to live out the lease on. There's more to it. And there always is. Okay. But so you, then know you were kicking around. So from that point, you were living with this girl. You guys just knew each other in Seattle and a few people. Yeah, we knew each other. We had a few friends. Um, I called, got an ad I saw at one of the music stores, American Music in Fremont. Um, met these kids, Nick and Pete. Pete's dad is a world famous researcher. I didn't know this at the time. He's a geneticist. He's very, very well respected and famous. I had no idea. I just knew that they lived in Sandpoint. That was where he practiced. Yeah. Um, I didn't find that out until my wife handed me an article at one point asking me like to summarize it. And I kind of looked at the name on the publishing. and I was like, I can't summarize it, but I know the guy. Yeah. <laughs> Maynard Olson. Yeah, I know him. She's like, you do not. And I'm like, no, I used to play in a band with his kid. I totally know him. What was that band? Um, that band was called Cortina. Okay. And um, we saw another flyer. All right. Now we're getting into the yeah the, the current events section of things. I don't even know if it's oh, current. but It's not current. Well, <laughs> since it's like over 20 years ago, it's not current. <laughs> so saw an ad on the wall. I want to say American Music again, Fremont, for um, demo recording. Mm-hmm. So I called the number and it was this guy named Jeff McCullough who ran a studio out of his house in Redmond. And we went out there over the course of about three days and knocked out, I want to say five songs with that. And and it was Cortina? Yeah, it was Cortina. Does yeah. that exist? Can I hear it? I'll try and find it for you. Okay. It's not, not online? A- <laughs> no, for the most part, none of my stuff's online. <laughs> um, yeah, so we recorded that and um, started playing a little bit. There was a an attempt to get a similar thing to the old firehouse going in Woodenville at um Sorensen hall so which is a uh, up on 175th it's like an old elementary school out there okay and it was the ymca i want to say that was doing it yeah north shore ymca and one of the first events they booked was us and a band called un which was um some guys who i guess were sort of the weird neurosis fans on the east side ben madonna eric workman um jim Ram. Um, Tyler Kennard, I think his last name was, and then a guy named Jeremy, who I can't remember his last name, but they were the kind of somewhere in between neurosis and a crazy screaming hardcore band. And we didn't sound, we, we played after them 
And I think my stage patter that night was, hi, we're Cortina. We don't sound a damn thing like that. (laughs) (laughs) And I've always kind of done that when, you know, I get real self-effacing sometimes on this. And we, we played the show and they liked us. And we liked them. So we kind of, that was where I met Ben and Eric and we kind of hit, all hit it off. And we're like, man, we should totally play shows with these guys. Cool. No one's going to know what to quite think of this. So that band um, kind of went sideways because both the bass player and the drummer were going away to college. They were, you know, smart kids. They were going to college. So I ended up playing, um, let me see about the chronology here. I ended up playing in, um, another band with uh that producer jeff and um i want to say that we ended up with a kid named um jared eglinton or burke eglinton playing in there somewhere he was in another one of the local bands that was playing out there called flight 800 mm-hmm. named after the plane crash tragedy that happened at the time <laughs> there, they, there's those names again yeah they sounded like like kind of a junior version of un to a certain extent very power violency very yeah. screamy burke um, hell of a talented musician, hell of a guy. And, um, we had a drummer who came out of like some weird place in Tennessee and he had played in a hardcore band out there called Wellaway. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name was Brian Hoyne. I think that the other guys <clears throat> in that band went on to be in his hero is gone. Um, he moved to Seattle <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, um, he was in that band with us. We had a girl named Celeste, uh, Celeste walk singing. That was actually not horrible. What, what, was, that it band was, what was it called? That band was called 509, and we only right. played like maybe three shows. One of them, strangely enough, was without the drive-in. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Without like, the drive-in. Yeah, they, they showed up. Their show in Seattle had gotten canceled. What era at the drive-in? <sighs> I want to say 96, 97. Okay. Early. Early. Yeah, they only had the record out on flip side, and then they had the EP out, the El Gran Orgo EP. And I was like halfway booking this place at this point. So they showed up and they were kind of like, our Seattle show got canceled. We need gas money. We'll just play for merch, whatever we can sell. You don't got to pay us. And they dressed cool and they were, they, we knew some people. They, they were, were good. They were great. Well, I had no idea. I'd only heard that they were on flip side and I don't think there were any good bands on flip side <laughs> at that point, you know? So I'm like, oh great. They're on flip side. Well, they dress well. So that's something. And, um, they seem nice and we know some of the same people. So, Okay. And then they came on and they were from Planet Awesome. And you're like, what the fuck? Who are these guys? So yeah, they, they, we played, you know, with those guys. And then, um, don't remember why that split. You don't remember why that one? I don't remember why that one split up. Um, yeah, sorry. It's been too long. Okay. So (laughs) at at some point in, after that, you connect with Matt Matsuoka and you get into the hit. How did that happen? So let me see. There's another band in between those two. Okay. That started out as, um, let me see. It split up with a girl that happened in 97, late 97, 98, traveled, went back to Spokane for four months, end of 98. Oh, you did go back? Yeah, for four months. Told the, everybody. The, I was, the curse got you, though. It, it got me, but I got out again. Okay. Told everybody I was writing a book. That was why I was back. I should. It was great. <laughs> Played in a really phenomenal joke band over there called Kill the Edison. Okay. Phenomenal joke band. Um, with the Nickel, at least one of the Nickel brothers who were in about half the bands over there. Okay. And then Micah, who was um, aforementioned, who I'd been in 10% birthday with and played drums in a band called Intifada that played around here a little bit. Oh, I'm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He played drums for those guys. 
Um, Joe I played, Edison. Yeah, I played bass. Um, I want to say Joe Vitt from Intifada played guitar. And then uh, I think Stuart Nickel. Our goal was to eventually have everybody in Spokane in the band. Okay. We were going to keep playing shows until we could have well, like what this was, 30 person. What does the name mean? Turn off the lights. Kill like the Edison. Playing, yeah. Okay. Um, the singer was this guy who's one of That's the most cool. fascinating people I know named Giovanni Caputo. He used to do a zine called Cryptic Slaughter. Okay. And he was another person who like... You either love Giovanni or you hate Giovanni. Right. There's no middle ground on that guy. And I personally love him. I think he's phenomenal. And he sang. And he's definitely that sort of old punk rock sort of, he's not an older guy. He's a year or two younger than me. But he's got that sort of sarcastic punk rock, just don't give a shit kind of singer personality. He's that classic punk rock singer. So like I said, it was a joke band. Yeah. We had two practices and then we started playing shows. And... Yeah, we did Joy Division cover and shit like that. I mean, it was just all kinds of just let's have some fun. Cool. But then I got back in 99, like literally end of 99 and um, kind of seeing who's out there looking to play. I run into a couple people who it's a guitar player and a drummer. They have some songs. They have some stuff together. They've been playing together for a while. They've kicked around, you know, a couple of couple of like potential musicians and they end up booking me to jam with them the same night they booked a bass player a guy named Derek who was in murder city devils at the time and we played and it actually sounded really good and we were all kind of like whoa this is cool and Derek was super enthusiastic but this is 99 and the murder city devils were killing it in 99 everybody loved those guys yes at that point so he was like okay this is how we're gonna do it we're gonna have practice twice and then i gotta go on tour for three months <laughs> and it was like this whole year that he had he had planned out because the murder city devils were just blowing up yep and he said, alternatively, I understand if you guys don't want to do this, I'll give you this guy Alan Ross's number. Because Alan Ross is around, he used to play in some bands in Atlanta, and I think you guys would, would click. Except he doesn't play bass, he plays guitar. So, I didn't have any real philosophical objections to switching. Because I was playing guitar in that lineup, but I've always been pretty utilitarian about this. Okay. I want to be in the band, and I don't care if I play bass or guitar. Now I kind of do, but I didn't back then. So we brought Alan out and Alan's a guitar tech. He knows how to make stuff sound great. He's got a phenomenal set of gear and he's a great player. Good singer can write stuff just like off the top of his head. So we're like, wow. Okay. This is, this is the lineup right here. So we ended up playing a few shows. We played the old high score back when that was going. What Capitol were you Hill. called? Uh, we were called case quarter at the end. Okay. Those I can get you. I have those songs. Excellent. That's easy. Um, so we played a few shows, played the paradox a couple times. Um, don't know that, <laughs> don't know that I actually played the firehouse until you played the paradox. So this went into early, early two thousands. Yeah. Because, so this is 99 and 2000. Cause the velvet Elvis is gone and now right. the center of the all ages stuff in Seattle is starting to be paradox, theater. paradox theater, which is at the, uh, North end of university Avenue. Right. The velvet Elvis had been the only place really where we had good all ages stuff happening in Seattle prior to that. Right. Right. So paradox, um, played, you know, some of the stuff around there, the rendezvous, I think we played like all of our shows in Seattle, you know, <laughs> I don't think we made it out of town, even to the East side. I don't think we even got there. Yeah. We were supposed to play ground zero one night and it got canceled for some reason. Ground zero was a teen center, similar to the old firehouse in yep. Bellevue. Yep. Um, don't think it quite was as successful or as awesome, but it's really hard to capture that lightning in a bottle. I loved that room though. Oh, it was a better, better sound room. 
Ground Zero sounded good. Yeah. The firehouse sounded like crap. And the, <laughs> and the stage was knee high. Yeah. Which always made for a cool show. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I saw some great shows at Ground Zero. I remember seeing Trial there one night, and it was incredible. Trial, Trial was phenomenal. Trial was great point. there. Botch was great there. Oh, God. I never saw Botch play a bad show. Never saw Botch play a bad show, ever. No. I know they were probably did. I just never happened to be there. Yeah. Um, you saw them more than me. Maybe you did. but No, they were all, they were all good. <laughs> I, I remember like... from the first time I saw them, at, uh, at, I was really stoked on them at uh, Velvet Elvis. Right. And uh, I think I'd seen them before, but... It, I, this was where it was basically from that point forward, mm-hmm. no bad shows, as far as I know. You know, they might tell you they did, but right, I'm but unaware of them. They're coming at it from a completely different perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't listen to the musicians on this one, right? The crowd probably never did not <laughs> see a bad show from them from that point forward. Um, so basically, there were some kind of we did some recording in that band, we recorded um, four songs. With uh, Jake Snyder from okay. State Route 522 mm-hmm. at the time. He's been on this podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he has. <laughs> <laughs> he was recording at some weird house, like halfway in between Renton and Issaquah, like way out in the middle of nowhere, out in the Highlands somewhere. Oh, he was? Yeah. So we went out there and recorded that. And um, then we did four more songs down in Tacoma with Clint Werner from Seaweed. Yep. And those songs actually sound really good. Um, Clint was is, Clint's a great, is great. Yeah. yeah he did the Undertow uh, at both ends LP okay uh, well, I think he did Control also and then he also did the Hutch stuff that I put out Ooh. or some of it oh that stuff was good yeah. thank you Clint made a lot of great records he was in Seaweed who were phenomenal and then he was that like kind of halfway in between going into like a bigger studio and recording with people who would charge you tons of money yeah and like going to somebody who's basically doing demos Right. Clint was that sort of mid grade. Um, what was it called? Uptone in Tacoma. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He made, he made great stuff. Terrible neighborhood, but man, that was a cool studio. (laughs) He said he found a dead body one time in the back, like somebody had overdosed in the back of the building. (laughs) He's on Tacoma Avenue in Tacoma. And if you're a local, you know what that means. That area is awful. Still bad. It wasn't at his his old house. No, this is at the, so when I was out there, I recorded out there one time with with die down too. And that was in his house. I didn't ever go to the building uptown. Yeah, see, my friend Kevin that I referenced earlier, um, when he was in Milltown they, with Jason Leon, they recorded their stuff with Clint at um, Jason at Clint's yeah. house. Okay. So that was that era of that. Anyway, so we recorded that. <laughs> um, let's just say Alan Ross made... He, he's not somebody who would kick you out of a band. He's somebody who tried to vibe you out of a band. Yeah. And he was finally successful. At vibing you out? Yeah, finally. And I'm I'm hard to vibe out of things. When right. I really like things, I'm hard to vibe out. But he's one of those people who's just, he'll make you so miserable you leave. Okay. I think they played one more show after that. And that was the end of that. Oh, so you were actually the heart and soul of the band. Um, I'm not saying I was the heart and soul of the band, but I'm saying that like people, people stopped being quite so interested, I think. Hmm. They couldn't really ever make it work consistently after that. Okay. I mean, I've never been the greatest musician. I'm not the best looking guy. And that was important to him. He was not happy with the fact that I was a little overweight at the time. He made that very clear. Oh man. Yeah. Cause I mean, he, that guy had dreams of stardom. Okay. In his head. Um, so get out of that. At that point I needed to change. I, I just I needed to get out for a while. I was pretty burned out on everything. Um, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, she's a researcher. She does genetics and she decided that she was kind of sick of the current, you know, like, situation too. So she started firing off resumes. 
-hmm. And we figured we would just move to like the most interesting place that offered her a job. And the two finalists were um, UCSF in the Bay Area, University of California, San Francisco, and um, Penn State. And she's originally from the Philippines. So I couldn't really lie to her about what the winters were going to be like in State College, Pennsylvania. (laughs) I'm like, you've never seen cold. I've never seen cold. And I'm from Spokane. It comes down over there, but it doesn't come down like that. So we opted for the Bay Area. I don't think I played music at all in the Bay Area. I mean, I went to a bunch of shows. We lived walking distance from Gilman. Nice. We lived like literally at the corner of University and San Pablo, which is kind of dead smack in the middle of Berkeley. Went to a bunch of shows, um, kind of hung out, had a few friends, had a kind of a decent, a decent gig, but it never really felt like home. You know, it was just things kept getting more expensive every month. We were there at the height of the dot-com thing. Oh, right. Yeah, so we were playing 1100 for this shit box of a one-bedroom in Berkeley, and we were lucky to get it. Right before the bubble burst. Right before the bubble. We were there when the bubble burst. Okay. We were there. Berkeley was a weird place to be on September 11th. Let's just say that. <laughs> that was a strange place to be when that all happened. And we just, you know, she'd had one relative pass at that point earlier that year, so we just kind of decided this isn't working. We need to be back up in the northwest and then when i got back up here um i don't remember how i heard about it maybe it was on the old northwest hardcore message board i think it might have been but i remember that somebody had told me that matt matsuoka was looking for somebody to play bass and i'd always been a fan of that guy which was I don't know. It, it was weird. I just, I'd never really kind of understood it, but I was a huge fan because I was always into the poppier side of things. Always mm-hmm. have been, but I don't know. It just, it never really quite clicked. I just, I, there was something that I just never really understood. I liked those records, but for some reason didn't really want to admit it. And when you say those records, you mean the, I mean, 10 of seven, I mean, red rocket. Red rocket. And yeah. I knew <laughs> what's funny is like uh, the first time I think I heard red rocket. I don't think I knew. I didn't know who was in it. And I remember thinking, boy, these guys are trying as hard as they can to be 1007, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand that. Right. Like, that's just Matt Rock. That's how that works. Right. Matt, I love it. Matt Rock. Matt Rock. Yeah. That's early Matt Rock. I was in the later incarnation of Matt Rock. Um, are you the guy who, who coined the phrase Matt Rock? I might have been. Okay. I'll, I'll take credit for it, but <laughs> <laughs> it was Matt Rock. And that's kind of, the guy's a phenomenal songwriter. He's one of the better songwriters He's the best songwriter I've ever worked with. Let's put it that way. And I think he's legitimately up there. And the one thing that's interesting about Matt. It's weird to know someone, you know, I've known him for more than half my life now. And to know that he's like this untapped, he's like a vein of gold that like no one has found. Like some people right. found bits of it. Like they, they panned the gold out of the river downstream, but they've <laughs> never actually found like. that. There is this like genius songwriter yeah. living in Seattle. and. I believe that a band of like pretty boys mm-hmm. with some talent could could raid his catalog and put together an amazing hit filled record. Well, what he could do is he could write <laughs> that record and have those guys play it. Yeah, but they could just up they could literally just update everything from yeah. the, the ten oh seven demo forward. He put me onto a soundtrack and this is gonna crack you up and I want something I mean if we're putting stuff from this, <laughs> this on this, you gotta put this on here for him, if nothing else. The Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack. For the movie. Yeah. Go listen to it. <laughs> Matt loves it. It's he lo- yeah. he absolutely he'll he'll remember this. It's the Josie and the Pussycats. Even song. though the movie freaked him out. May have, but the songs the were. The movie great. freaked him out because the girl ends up being a seal. 
Well, I, do you remember what happened? I never the saw end? the movie. Okay. I never saw the movie. Here's so. the thing. Josie and the Pussycats is not a very good movie. Okay. Um, but it's it does have these weird parts in it that are like kind of out of step with the rest of the movie. And in the end, the 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 secret reveal is that Parker Posey's character is a secret albino. And she's been hiding it from everybody. I think she pulls her wig off and she's oh got like white hair. And it, it, it actually freaked him out. That does not surprise me. That does not surprise me in the slightest. But like. Like it disturbed him. That album was actually written and produced. Like all the songs were written and produced by Adam Duritz from Counting Crows and Babyface, the R&B producer. Oh, so it's awesome. Yeah, it's like like <laughs> pop stuff, but with like huge choruses. It's like like two guys who know how to make hit records who don't write songs like this. Right. You, you'll hear it. And you'll be like, shit, this is so good. And it's the um, it the woman who sang s- from Letters to Cleo on vocals, right. singing like like almost <laughs> fastbacks. But like if the fastbacks were like really trying to make hit records. Well, and Matt's a huge fastbacks fan, right. so that makes sense. Right, and he put me out of that, and I was just like, you're out of your mind, and I listened to it, and I'm like, maybe, but it works. So, I got to play with this guy, and we lost the second guitar player. You got to play with Matt, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it worked, and we, we played, we clicked, I learned the songs as fast as I could to try and, because again, we had shows. I mean, we had shows coming up. And people that could work with Matt had to kind of know and understand Matt. Right. And that's, that's Matt. Like that is who he is. He's a, uh, well, just look, go listen to his podcast. The one that of this, of this podcast, his episode. And then in a few months, uh, listen to his show. You'll see what we're talking about. Right. And this is where I think the background and like, you know, growing up in a small town and being weird really helps because like, there's a lot of stuff that Matt does. And I mean, again, I haven't, I haven't talked to Matt in a while and that's, that's on me. That's not on him. Oh, it's going to change soon. That's, that's totally on me. That's, that's on me just getting busy and getting hyper-focused on, on the business. But for the most part, I, I understand why certain people probably had a problem with that guy, but I never did. Yeah. It works. I had a problem with is, 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 I don't know if that's the right way to put it. <laughs> it's more like he's just, Yeah. It, it's like, look, you can either take it or you can't, you know, it's Matt. And if you can handle the guy, he's great. I was always able to handle him relatively well. I think he, he's great. He will periodically shoot things at you. Mm-hmm. Maybe a dart gun. Maybe a, he's BB really, gun? maybe a BB gun. Do now? Uh, maybe he's, he, he mods nerf guns to the, to the absolute like limits of the, the strain that the plastic they're made out of can take. And then he paints them and gives them names like Le Sac Splitter. <laughs> That's so mad. <laughs> so, and so, I'm laughing, but so, I'm not surprised. For example, <laughs> we were at the store this weekend okay. and he was debating whether he should buy another of these Nerf guns. And I said, well, why do you need another one? And he said, well, all the ones I've made before, the back end is broken out because I modded them up too strong a springs. <laughs> But he works at a place where they all they all fire Nerf guns at each other. It's like a workplace thing. Right. So he's, right. It's so a he's, perfect environment for him. So he's trying to bring in the biggest, meanest Nerf gun he can find. I believe they've told him he can't bring some of his stuff in now. <laughs> that's so And mad. then also, uh, he, he modded one so it can fire other stuff that's not quite like Nerf size. And uh, oh, we're definitely trying to make a video where he fires little Smokies across the room into Bill Baker's <laughs> mouth. 
<laughs> God bless Bill Baker for putting up with this. It, so, so is Matt still an insomniac? Does Matt still not sleep? I don't know. Because at one point Matt didn't sleep. Right. Matt went a probably while a without sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Matt has, uh, you know, Matt, um, Matt, I don't know if it's the same, you know, he, he, he uh, it's legal now. So I suppose it's right. no surprise to anybody. He partakes a little bit of the, uh, a little bit of, of, of the weed. Just a little his, bit. His podcast may actually be referencing that in the title. Uh, Somehow wouldn't be surprised about that either. I'm going to go ahead and let the title get announced when it gets announced. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. So, okay. So you, you get into the hit. Right. What was it called? The hit. It was the called time? the hit. Okay. And I remember him loving it, like thinking that you were just like there with it. Like, you know, it was the first time that like, I wasn't really feeling like vibed. Like there wasn't like, we just clicked on a personal level. Like we mm-hmm. liked each other and it was like, okay, we're going to make the rest of this work. I think all he cared about is that you just did your job. I wanted to be in that band. Yeah. He just wanted you to play the stuff, right? right. That was it. I mean, there's no more to it. I had no delusions about being a songwriter. I know that he had had problems with people in his previous projects, wanting to play too many of their songs or, you know, like there was always that thing. And I, I knew, I hate to say it like this, but you know, I kind of knew what my role was. Show up, play bass, haul the heavy shit. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was my job. And I'm fine with that for the most part, because like for me, it was always kind of about, I want to be in the band. But so you guys, what do you do? So I feel like the hit was the culmination so far <laughs> of, uh, and Matt's talking about playing music again. So, oh, so of, <laughs> of, of what everything Matt had done. And when, when you get to, I mean, that EP you guys put out is fantastic. We did a, a limited run on excursion and then right. it came out on the Spanish label. It's called caliber. Mm-hmm. And then you did uh, a full length called Shermer, Illinois. Yes. Which is fantastic. <laughs> Recorded with Grammy Award-winning producer Matt Billis. Yes. There you go. Both of those were, right? Um, yes, actually, they were. They, they were. Both, they both were. Now that and I think about it. I feel like the last four songs, and this is weird because when it all came to an end and Matt stopped playing music, the last four songs on that album are kind of like perfect examples of the things Matt does in songs. So if you go to there's four tracks left on Sherman, Illinois, and you just listen to the songs. It's almost like, here's a Matt retrospective. And then there's not any more afterwards. One of the reviews that we got, and it was in Spanish. <laughs> Cause I mean, when you put out a label in Spain, when you put out a record on a label in Spain, a lot of your reviews are not going to be in a language that's your first language. So yeah. Um, the thing that they said about that record that really stuck out was it was very cinematic. And I found myself thinking, well, yeah, cause it's Matt. this is a guy whose biggest influences culturally are i mean he used to reference like the three johns when it came to his movies you know he wanted to make a movie that was a perfect hybrid john hughes john waters and john woo Uh, if he somehow could have pulled that off he would have been a happy guy for the rest of his life i think well and he made two movies Uh uh-huh that's a pretty good (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's where he kind of comes from is the idea of like you know sweet romantic teen comedies about shit eating drag queens who try to kill each other and are professional assassins. I mean, this is like that's perfect... actually Matt's movies. Well, pretty much the first one. Okay. Heartbreak beat, which mm-hmm. is Matt's first movie is just mostly the, the, the teen side, the, but we, there was still some gunplay in it a yeah. little bit, but that was the kind of fake stuff in the, in the, in the, well, I don't even want to just, <laughs> don't even want to talk about but then for the cash, which is the real amalgamation of everything yeah. that you're talking about has, 
it's an, an impossible to follow follow plot involving clones and murderers and hitmen and secret hitmen <laughs> and a team that 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 gets pulled together to do something. I don't really remember to to get a briefcase that had a bomb in it. Or right, it's, right. It's crazy and it has some of the coolest stuff I've ever seen. And the funniest part is like. I have a feeling that most of the people who were in that movie had no idea what the fuck it was going to be about. No. But Matt is so enthusiastic when he's selling something, he can convince you. He'll get so into it, he'll be like, no, it's this, and it's going and, to be amazing. And, and here's the deal. Matt Wright from Gashoffer mm-hmm. in that movie is is a wonder to behold. He chooses, <laughs> He's awesome. He kills people all over the place. He looks amazing, delivers every line like it's fucking a Hollywood baby. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, when you start making these, like... Really, I have a movie I want to make. I don't have actors. I don't have a budget. I'm going to hit the people up I know. You get some phenomenal performances periodically from people. Here's the thing. Uh Okay. I'm a ninja in that movie. (laughs) I played a ninja in a movie. There you go. (laughs) And I did. I I fell off the top of a car with a sword in my hand. I did stunt work. (laughs) So yeah (laughs) the the thing is like matt is awesome he's one of the most creative people that i've ever met in my life he is just he's a force botch get murdered in that movie Uh uh-huh all of them (laughs) it's great (laughs) because they play the um the the assassination team what's the three of them do tim wasn't there but um I can't remember what the the pipe fitters pipe fitters fitters (laughs) that aren't referenced Almost at all until suddenly they're just there. Uh, one gets their throat <laughs> cut. The other one gets his balls ripped off and eaten. Do yes, you remember? Yes, I remember. Yeah. So <laughs> this hence, is hence the John Waters. People I mean. need to somehow try to track down. I believe there's a Spanish DVD because everything ended up coming out in Spain because why not of uh, For the Cash. And it's because we pure had insanity. some crazy Spaniards that were prepared to pay us money for this stuff. They I mean, were excited about Matt. And I, lo- I love anyone who's excited about they Matt. They flew us to Spain and played had us play shows i mean it the was... hit actually toured spain i know and it was not nowhere else in europe no spain how many shows i want to say 10 you played 10 shows 10 in shows spain. 10 shows in spain and that was a hard trip oh that was not a fun trip i mean it was fun but that was he that was the end of i thought at the time matt wanting to ever play music with other people yeah he was having he went through a period of time where he he needed to be by himself for a while that's right. essentially, I think, and that's kind of what he did for a while. And at the very beginning of that period, what better way to start it off than to go on tour in a country where you don't speak the language? He wanted to mention oh, something about being on a bench and taking pictures of him with artwork or with statues or something. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> he, he told me to ask Said about bench that. is in Alicante. Mm-hmm. And when I was there in 2007 again, I'll shoot him the shot. But I updated that photo. Okay, I the need these photos the for okay. the uh, okay for the blog. So people you. go to the blog page for this episode, and you can check it out at right, com. It's um, so it's a public market in Alicante, Spain. There's a bench with um a statue, bronze statue of like an old man sitting there, kind of waiting for the bus. Mm-hmm. And Matt and myself and John Wicks, the drummer decided to do some really bad things to that guy and take pictures of it. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. All right. And it's Spain, so people were just probably like, oh. It was late and we were all drunk, I think. So, I mean, it's definitely like they party in Spain and it's a very late kind of country. 
They yeah. don't. They're up late and they sleep in the morning? Um, well, no, they don't sleep in the morning, but they have this interesting custom called siesta. Oh. Where everything kind of shuts down from about 1 p.m. till about 4 p.m. Everything in the country, like literally, stores shut, which is weird when you're on tour. Because a lot of mm. the time you're getting into towns at that point. Right. Like your van rolls in at about two o'clock in the afternoon. Because none of the drives, I mean, Spain's not huge. None of the drives are really all that long. So we're rolling into these towns and everything is closed in the middle of the afternoon. It's like, man, where do we even buy food? So you end up eating in the bar because the bar is open. And that's like the only thing. But the bar is actually not the worst place to eat. You will get a better coffee at the bar for the most part. And I'm talking to any bar in Spain. Yeah. <laughs> any bar that we went to. Um, then some of the finer establishments you'll find here. It's true. Um, the guy who played drums in that band, John Wicks, was um, at one point worked for Uptown Espresso. He spent quite a bit of time making coffee, as did I at one point. We both pretty much knew our shit when it came to coffee. And we end up in this um, bar that was charitably described as a shithole <laughs> in the town that we first got to, which was... Um, Cabrillos, which is north of Barcelona, uh, where our label was based out of. And we go to this bar and it's like a dive. And we walk in and we've just gotten off like a 14 hour Seattle to Amsterdam to Spain flight. Matt is back sick at the house. John and I are at this place. And we're like, we need coffee fucking now. One of my strategies for being on a massive time change is to set your watch as soon as you can and then stay up. Until the normal bedtime, regardless of what it takes. Drink as much coffee as you have to. Stay uh, up. Okay. okay. So that way, you'll go to sleep. You'll sleep your normal amount of time. When you wake up, you'll be on that time. I've been doing that for years. It works great. So we're in pursuit of this. It's like one o'clock in the afternoon. I got like, God, minimum like seven, eight more hours. I've got to be awake. So we go down to this coffee place. It's a complete shithole. They serve us what they called cortado, which is like an espresso shot and then that much milk. And I don't know what they're doing, but it's like, oh, my God, this is crazy. This is better than anything in Seattle. John, am I wrong? And he's like, no, no, this is great. So, like, at least we knew we could get coffee anywhere on this tour. It was wonderful. Right. But it it really kind of coincided, I think, with Matt not wanting to deal with people or not wanting to deal with playing his songs in front of an audience. I think he never. Yeah, and he and Ultramat went from being something he wanted to do with a bunch of people to being he just it was it was time for some time alone. Yeah, yeah, and I felt really bad about that. Like, it wasn't your fault. I know it was my fault, but I felt like here's this guy that has all this talent. Like seriously, he is insanely talented, and has such a love hate relationship with his talent. Sometimes he's loving it. And then sometimes he just, I wish all these people would stop paying attention to me. Yeah. I just want to like make my videos and write my songs. And I don't really care if anyone ever sees them or hears them. I got to make them. And then after that, doesn't I mean, matter. It's, he likes to have a small group of people who he likes see them. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. He doesn't care about being, and that's the secret to Matt. And I didn't realize this until I started playing with him. But the secret to Matt is he doesn't give a shit about being famous because after that tour, um, <laughs> let's just be charitable and say that we weren't going to play with John anymore. Okay. Okay. So John went off and did his thing. He's, he's in a big, a band that's actually pretty popular right now. Um, they have radio hits and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I think he's playing drums in a band called Fits and the Tantrums. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he's in that, but we, 
we're kind of kicking around the idea. Do we want to do this still? Do we want to try and find another drummer? So I put kind of a half-hearted ad up on Northwest Hardcore at the time saying, hey, we're looking for a drummer. And then I get this email. It's really weird. From a guy named Wes Keeley, who had played drums. This is going to blow your mind. He had played drums for both Throwdown and Walls of Jericho. <laughs> and he wanted to be in the hit. And I'm nice. like, are you fucking with me? Seriously? You've heard us, right? You know we don't really sound like that. I mean, I... I, you know, I've heard both of those bands and y'all are great, but that ain't what we're doing. It's not changing. And he's like, look, I know I've always liked that kind of stuff. And you know, Wes being an ambitious guy, is kind of like, okay, here's this undiscovered genius songwriter. If I can get in this band and convince this guy to actually give a shit about right. getting famous, we're all going to be on cribs. I think that was his, <laughs> his exact phrasing was that. Oh, so we remember jammed. this is the guy that I started a record label to put out his music. Right. So he's been getting people to feel this way about him for a right. long time. And here's this drummer who's been in these hardcore bands that are actually pretty big. Who's hearing this and going, <laughs> fuck, yes, I want that guy. So... <clears throat> We jammed with him and it sounded, we gave him the songs, we jammed with him and it sounded phenomenal. I mean, like literally he was the right guy. Yeah. And this is no diss on John. He's an incredibly talented drummer, but John for the most part is a jazz guy. He's a jazz guy, graduated from Berklee College of Music. He's slow. He's a little bit behind the beat, which is his style. It's perfect for what he does. But Wes is a rock drummer. And as he put it, I'm just back there doing my best Trey Cool impression. And here's a guy who can handle the drums for Throwdown. Pretending right. to be Trey Cool, playing behind Matt Matsuoka. <laughs> and I'm like, Dave, I really wish you could have heard it. Because oh. that is one of the most... Matt never had a drummer who could keep up with him like this. And this guy... I think that Eric and Matt were a great combo. Eric and Matt were good. In Red, um, in Red Rocket. This guy was better. <laughs> oh, sure. But it was a good... That yeah, was it a... worked. And I'm not... Again, I no diss on Eric. Oh, God. And and, and, and Eric Kinder. Yeah. and Eric, Okay, so I'm thinking of Red Rocket, Eric, too. I mean, like... They're, he, he played with, I think, a lot of people who were quite good. Right. But this is locked in. I remember thinking, holy shit, if Matt signs on on this, this is, I mean, whether he likes it or not, this is going to be the piece. Yeah. Because having that just killer drummer. But that was kind of the bowing out time. So we went to Sherry's, had coffee, talked, laid the whole thing out where this was going to go. And we got back in the car and Matt was like, I don't want to do this. And I was like, dude, why? What's, what's the problem? This is great. This guy's on the page. This guy's totally motivated he's good he's serious he's not a flake you know let's make it work and he's like i just don't care i just don't care about what you know what we're talking about here i just don't this is not something i want this is not something i'm interested in he always had like the songs that people really liked we had a song on Sherman, illinois called crazy beautiful that everyone liked except him right he's the guy who didn't like it and he's like, it's just a dumb song. It's a chant song. It's like, this is easy. I can write this stuff in my sleep. I hate it. And it's like, you know, <laughs> then you shouldn't write it. Save that then. Don't the put time, it out there and get mad by the that people time, like it. By the time he was doing 10 of 7 uh -huh. and he was doing the songs on You're Cool, which is the record I put out. Right. Which is, in my mind, not as good as Chainsaw Orchestra, which is the 10 of 7 first LP. Right, right. Which, it, which blows my mind how good that record is. By the time they were doing the You're Cool songs, he said that he would not play any of those songs from Chance Orchestra and that they did, he didn't think they were good and it wasn't even the same band anymore. That's why he had changed the name. He used to use a number, then he spelled it out. That was the name change. And I totally see where you come from. Like, I would just, I just wanted to hear Misery and I wanted to hear yeah. those, those songs that I just loved. And it was just like, nope, this is what I'm doing now. Or this yep. is what, you know, and it and was. And he's uncompromising. Yeah. I mean, never going to talk that guy into doing anything he doesn't want to do. 
I learned that real early. <laughs> Matt does not do stuff Matt don't want to do. Okay, so that's so that's Matt. That was the end of the hit. And was that the last time you played music? Um, outside of a brief, like four or five band practice thing with um, so there was a drummer who I think also played some guitar, kicking around for a while. I don't remember his last name. He had long red hair. His name was Wes. Um, played with him and um, of all people, Bill Baker was going to sing in a kind of like doom metal thing. Wes is an heiress now. Oh, he is? You're talking about Wes Reed. Am I? Yeah. Red hair? From He was from Bellingham, New Bill. Yeah. And he they also... lived together by Northgate, I think. I know Wes lived over by Northgate. That was the house we jammed at a couple times. Yeah. 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 So that's what that's he's a yeah, he's an heiress now. And oh. he also played with Bill in Pistols at Dusk. Yeah, I remember that. Because yeah. Pistols at Dusk were my favorite band that was playing locally at the time. Nice. Loved those guys. Really, really good. Holy God. The whole demo is still up online. I gotta get that. It's, it'll be on it'll be linked on your blog. Please page. do, because yeah. I love that stuff. It's good. Yeah, so I had um I played with those guys. Um we were playing this almost like doom metal kind of like downtune stuff. Um we had the greatest name. It's gonna be called The Beast Destroys You. Remember that? No, because it really never went anywhere. We jammed about four or five Bill times. Bill told me about it, and I, my heart wasn't in it. I wanted to be playing the stuff that we were playing with Matt. I just, I, I mean, it was, it was sucked because it was great. I mean, the stuff we were writing was cool, and I think it was going to probably do reasonably well. But if you don't really believe in it, it's really yeah. hard to show up for band practice. And it's nothing on those guys because it was good songs. I was just still in kind of like, I want to play pop punk. I want to play in this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of where I hit pause. That was kind of where I hit pause. I was kind of like the guys I want to play <clears throat> with don't want to play music. Well, and that had to be right about the time you decided. Uh, yeah, it was. Let's fight. Because like literally. Yeah. Cause the hit went bye bye in early 2004. Okay. And, you know, it was weird because I was still hanging out with Matt all the time. We used to go, like every weekend we would go to, we'd go to Toys R Us. Um, <laughs> that still that is that. definitely a, a Matt thing. Right. Yeah. We'd go to Toys R Us. Um, we'd go and hang out with him. Me, me and my wife, we, we hung out with him a lot. We would go out and, you know, he knew all the really good, like, late Chinese places in the International District. So we weren't playing music, but we were still hanging out, like, all the time. And, you know... <laughs> I actually ended up introducing him to a girl that he ended up dating like a couple of years later, mm-hmm. um, which was really weird. I was kind of shocked that that worked ever, but yeah. So basically I got into this, this period where I was just, you know, I need to do something else. And one thing I'd always kind of said to myself, cause I had just turned 30 at that point. And one thing I always kind of said to myself was like, I don't want to be that old guy that's hanging out at shows and telling the kids they're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Because I used to hate that. You guys weren't as good as this band, or right. you should be doing it this way. I hated those people. And I didn't want to be that person. So conveniently, in 2005, you know, I was working at this IT company, working this job on Bainbridge for this scumbag record producer guy. Um, not saying his name. But, but, you know, he's... Yeah, not a fan. <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> um, I just, that that job was just driving me crazy, dealing with this guy, and I needed something else. My boss at the time was really into Kung Fu, really super into Kung Fu, and he 
kept telling me I should try martial arts. I should try this. I'd be happier. So he never made Kung Fu sound like all that much fun. He made it sound like very rigid and like we have to believe in Grandmaster so-and-so. So that didn't seem like it made any sense at all. So I kind of just started looking around to seeing what was close. And I was living in West Seattle at the time. And it turns out that um, there was a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school in um, the old Tully's building, the old Rainier Brewery down on Airport Way. So I called and um, the guy who answered the phone is um, a guy named Rodrigo Lopes, who's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. And he was totally in startup mode at the time. He was getting this place going. He had some old wrestling mats on a corner of this building that he was sharing space with the Capoeira school. And Rodrigo was not letting anybody off the phone at that point without <laughs> a commitment to come in. Cause right. I mean, one thing about that guy, he's a hustler. He's, he's like got that sort of like, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to get people in there really enthusiastic. So I show up at the time I'm smoking two packs a day, way overweight. Can't do anything. I'm just awful. He thinks I threw up in the bathroom that first day. I'd admit it. <laughs> I didn't. I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to. I wish I could have. I would have felt better. But yeah, I had no idea what I was getting into. It was crazy. But it made sense. It was like, I'm going to do this. And I, you know, I'm the stupid guy that so, just kept showing up. So you had not done it before. Never. So let's talk about, and then this was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yes. Right? Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. No, not ju- no Judo? No, no, no Judo. Okay. Because the one I went to with Matt years before in the late nineties was judo and jujitsu. Yeah. And I thought maybe you might've gotten connected up through Matt. No, 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 no. <clears throat> and I could tell you stories about that guy, but I'm not going to not while the tape's running. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, Cause I can tell you stories back. So uh-huh. we can definitely talk uh, yeah. about that, but put uh, it this way. He's still around and he hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, uh, Carson, um, C- Carson is still connected. So that's a whole other story. Here's what I want to know. Cause I had a little bit of experience with this. What did you wear? The first time you went, um, I think I wore sweatpants and a t-shirt and they gave me a gi. Oh, they had like a practice, like gi? just a loner. So a top. gi is that suit yeah. that, that, that it's like a judo suit. Yeah. Essentially. And it has a belt mm-hmm. and it has the, the, the collars and all, and the, and the longer sleeves and all of this is you, you actually do moves grabbing those and choking. Oh, absolutely. Those and stuff. It's part and parcel of what we do. It's part of what you do. And, and that's a, the gi ends up being like an analogy for like, if you fight someone in a coat, you can use their coat the same way that you use the gi, right? But you're not going to, but you can't go practice in a t-shirt with sweats. You've got to have the gi. Um, we'll see. No. And for the most part, what you say about the coat is very accurate. I tell people that when they're asking, well, how realistic is it to train in that? Well, mm-hmm. you live in Seattle where we wear jackets nine months out of the year. So I think it's very realistic yeah. to know how to choke somebody with their own jacket. Well, there's still other stuff you can do if they didn't have that. Thing, oh, absolutely. But it's, you, it's, you gotta know. Right. And the thing is like, it's less about what you can do and more about kind of a philosophical thing. But there is something that in jujitsu they call nogi, which is just basically like shorts and a t-shirt or shorts and mm. a rash guard. Um, some people would refer to that more as submission grappling. Okay. But for the most part, it's jujitsu without the gi. Okay. And the differences here are kind of philosophical in terms of like how aggressive you should be. The wrestlers that get into this tend to go a lot harder. They tend to be Mm -hmm. the guys that are really aggressive and pushing the pace and trying to make things happen. And jujitsu works best when it's reactive. Jujitsu works best when I get to see what you're doing and I get to react to what you're doing. Okay. I get to be like a step behind you, but that's okay. Because for the most part, what I'm doing is I'm setting traps. If we're in a situation where we're grappling, I'm trying to give you bad options. I'm trying to make sure that all of your options suck. Right. Because now what you, so 
let me jump in here and sure, for people absolutely. who are listening and maybe don't know what we're talking about. So you're saying like, you're not saying this as an instructor. You're saying this as a person who's grappling yeah, with this person. As the person who's grappling with opponent. this person. So you're going to give them bad options. Absolutely. They're going to put their arm somewhere where you can get a hold of it and twist it in a way that yeah. will make them submit absolutely. and you will win. And that's the, that's what the goal, right? The goal is in the broad strokes. The first thing you want to do is not lose. Yeah. The first thing you want to do is not lose, survive, right? Get to a point where they can't hurt you. Mm-hmm. Get to a point where they can't hurt you bad. Then figure out a way to win. Right. What you do is the first thing you focus on is like, how do I defend myself? The best way I ever heard it put was um, a guy named Henry Gracie put it on a level of like, if we put strikes on a scale of one to 10, you know, one is like your five-year-old hitting you yeah. and 10 is like vintage Mike Tyson. Yeah. You want to make sure that everything stays below five. When you, the, the strikes that the you strikes actually that do? The strikes that you're eating stay you, oh, below oh. five. Right. Because they, because they can't get a good swing. You can survive that. Yeah. You can't necessarily survive vintage Mike Tyson. Right. Right. So you don't let it get to that. The best way to do that is to control the range. If I'm close enough to you, Mm -hmm. you can't hit me hard. Right. If I'm far enough away from you, you can't hit me hard. Um, Hicks and Gracie said strikers have a gentleman's agreement to stand within a certain, you know, distance from each other and hit each other. That's great. But I'm not playing that game. I'm going to get either closer or farther back. You can't hit me from here, and you can't hit me effectively from here. And so the school that you run, you you do grappling and striking? Um, No, for the most part, we're straight up grappling. So we're okay, straight up that, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Because that's a different thing. Because isn't the striking essentially Thai kickboxing? Um, Well, it depends on what you're asking. Um, And I'm going to try not so to get I'm, too so nuanced so I'm, here. So I'm asking as someone who has the tiniest bit of knowledge enough to just be dangerous and say things wrong. Okay. But imagine that who's listening has so, far less than I do. Let's break it out into two camps here. When you're talking about mixed martial arts, a lot of the striking is derived from Thai boxing. Um, these days, things like Taekwondo are starting to actually make an appearance. You, you got your guys like Conor McGregor who came from, you know, traditional martial arts, Taekwondo backgrounds and are starting to throw that kind of flashier striking in with what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But traditional... That's like flair. Right? Yeah, it's very flair. It's very like they aren't looking for it to come in from that angle. Right. Like I can hit you with spinning back fists and, you know, weird angle stuff. Looks good on camera. Oh, it totally does. Okay. And it makes you a rock star. For the most part, striking kicks punches in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu are done to control distance. Okay. You're not really ever trying to hit somebody or hurt somebody. Like if you get too close, I can push kick you back. I'm not necessarily trying to knock you out with any of this. Okay. I'm trying to control distance. I'm trying to keep you in a certain range. Okay. If I'm trying to keep you away from me. I'm not going to let you get any closer than like the edge of my fist outstretched to the edge of your fist, because from that point I'm safe range wise. But what I'm looking to do is keep that fight in the range that I wanted. And I'm using strikes to move you either backwards or forwards. What I really want is to be able to get from striking range, which isn't necessarily where I'm great into clinch range, which is where we're on our feet, but I've got to hold you. Yeah. From there it goes to the ground relatively fast. And then, yeah. Now, are you about throws that um, do damage upon landing, or is it getting them down to be able to armbar or choke? To be honest, because um, that might be judo. Judo operates on the logic that a well placed throw can end a fight. Yes, and they're right. You know, if I throw you on concrete, if I hit like, say, you know, an uchimata, which is the big judo throw that everybody thinks of, where you have the leg in between the legs, yeah, and you're inverting the guy, yeah. 
if you hit a new Chimata correctly on somebody on a pavement, that's it. it well, if we're falling and I, I've, I've got your arms tied up so you can't block it and you end up being the one that hits first with yes. me on top of you, that's not good for you. No, that's not good for you at all. So, but that's, but that's also not really a jujitsu thing. Well, it's really hard to do on people who for the most part know how to stop it. Right. I mean, you see those kinds of throws in international competitions, but for the most part, that's in competition. But if we're out in the world, right, and someone knows how to do this stuff, at whatever bro comes up to them in the bar is not gonna, even if they maybe know a little bit because they've been watching the UFC or whatever, right? They're still gonna hit the ground. The thing is though that jujitsu starts from that worst case scenario mentality. Yeah, like jujitsu, what I wanted to be able to do is like. I start with you in what's called mount position, which is you with your knees like up over my chest and hitting me. Right. Right. We're not thinking. So you've already gone to the ground. Now yeah, we're thinking like this is the worst case. What happens if okay. I'm in this situation and I've got the big college wrestler who has like, and believe me, the college wrestler can take you down. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's going to sure. happen. Um, anybody who tells you they train not to get taken to the ground unless they are like doing this with top level judo guys and college wrestlers are full of shit. Right. Right. You will get taken down sure. regardless of how good you are. The question is what happens then? Right. And we operate on the assumption that like you need to be able to not just survive, but to escape from those positions. You need to be able to escape. You need to be able to defend yourself effectively while you're escaping. And then once you get to what we call guard, which is basically being able to control the person with your legs either with your legs wrapped around them with closed guard or legs open using your feet and, and legs to push that person in control distance, mm-hmm. then you can start looking for ways to turn the fight in your favor. You can start looking to submit them at that point. Judo is, is that, is the thing that you just described to me? Is that a, is that Gracie style? Um, I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Okay. Because the if people go back far enough with this, they'll remember that the original Ultimate Fighting Championships, there was this small man in mm-hmm. a white outfit who was beating everybody, and it wasn't flashy, and he wasn't no. some pit fighter throwing punches. He was getting the shit kicked out of him, but he was doing exactly the stuff that you're talking yeah. about, and that's Hoist Gracie. That's, he was doing stuff that no one had really ever seen before. And people, some people were like, but it's boring. I was like, but it, it went, works. that guy's impressive. I remember it works. Yeah, it works. <laughs> and so that's a, it, does that philosophy come from that family? To an extent, it goes back a little farther than the Gracie family. Um, there's a couple different takes on this, but the popular sort of myth of how this all got started. There's a gentleman named uh, Mitsuo Maeda, who was one of the original Kodokan judo students in Japan, Jigoro Kano, who started judo. Um, Maeda came to spread, he, he would send guys out to like do demonstrations and spread judo. In fact, Maeda did early demos at the old Seattle dojo in their old location down in the international district, which is like first judo school in the United States. Um, he actually did a demo at the Naval Academy for Teddy Roosevelt uh, back in the day, Teddy Roosevelt trained, um, well, nobody made that distinction back then. It was jujitsu. Right. Right. You can, you can look up what Roosevelt said about jujitsu. He was a huge fan, loved it, thought it was great. Had mats in the white house, trained it. Right. So that's incredible. Maeda was, um, he did a stint of basically carnival fighting. Like you hook on with the carnival, you put the jacket on and see if you can. And again, these are things that you used to be able to say, throw the little jab. Right. That's what they said. 
but here's the thing. If you're going at it with somebody who has... Did they have a barker? Step right up. See absolutely. If throw the job. Absolutely. Oh, man. And all these big farm boys thought they could do it. All these big farm boys thought they could kill this guy, and then it just doesn't work that way. Wow. Because if you know how to throw hay somebody, bales all day long. Yeah, I what could throw this dude. Not happening. <laughs> so you, you just have to put on this jacket. <laughs> the only tr- the only thing is you have to wear this suit. Yeah, and of course. And they probably would. looked at it and went, well, there's nothing special about right. this. So... He did this for a while. He did a bunch of like, you know, prize fight challenge match stuff. Um, went at it with, you know, boxers, went at it with guys who did catch sketch can wrestling at the time. So by the time he got to Brazil, he had assimilated a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily classical judo. He had assimilated a lot of striking that wasn't necessarily the way they did it in judo. He had assimilated a lot of submission techniques that weren't necessarily the way they did it in judo. So there's this thing of, you know, people joking that the initials BJJ stand for basically just judo, which, you know, that's funny, but it's not entirely accurate. <laughs> right. And the reason it's not accurate is because this guy had 20 years of training, fighting, competing against people from, you know, completely different backgrounds. Right. There's no way you don't pick up a certain amount of that over the years. So it was ultimate fighting before it was on TV. Yeah. In carnivals. Not just carnivals, but um, this was a big deal in Brazil. There was a TV show for years called Vale Tudo, which was, for the most part, what you see currently, mixed martial arts. So why did Brazil become the mecca for this? Because if America had gone the way of wrestling still being a sport that didn't turn into show wrestling, it might have happened here. There was still that tradition of guys who could really go, guys who were what they refer to as shooters, who could actually do a real wrestling match if they needed to. Right. But for the most part, like you said, nobody really wants to watch that at the time. Most people want to see something flashy. They want them to go off the top turnbuckle. Right. So they started going off the top turnbuckle and jumping (laughs) through the air because it's way more fun to watch. You can build up these dramatic... The way I've explained it to people before is like, think of the most exciting sporting event you've ever seen in your life. With pro wrestling, or at least anything that's using a scripted sense of that, you can do that every time for good. You can make that work. I mean, you don't get these crazy blowouts unless it somehow advances the storyline to do that. Right. So, America's desire they're all to be the entertained. Most, they're all the most... It's all Forrest Griffin versus Stefan Bonner. Right. You could have that fight every single night in pro <laughs> wrestling if you wanted to, and they do. And and the, the jujitsu people know what I just referenced, and you yep. know what I just referenced, yep. and some people don't. Uh it's the fight that, for the most part, made the UFC in the current era. It was the the finale for the Ultimate Fighter, the first season, I think. Of the reality show. Right. It was the two top guys. And they had a war. They went out and had a war. To this day, it's one of the most amazing things I've ever and seen. And the thing is, like, from a technical perspective, it's a horrible fight. I'm not a huge... Here's the thing. I'm not a huge fan. I, I like this, and I know a little bit about it, and mm-hmm. I did a little bit with Matt back in the day. Right. Um, I like knowing some stuff. Mm-hmm. In case I need to use it, that's that's it. But and and you're right, they don't they kind of stand they stood and threw punches at each other. Yeah, it's rock 'em sock 'em for robots. fifteen minutes. But it's these two guys <laughs> that are out there giving everything they've got, and it kind of feels like they were keeping that thing that you said about keeping like controlling the distance. It's uh-huh. almost like they neither one of them got close enough ever really to get down to the ground very much. But no. it made people very excited. It it lent that showy quality to it put it this way there was a boxing trilogy that is referenced by boxing fans to this day arturo Gotti versus mickey ward mm-hmm. was these were these necessarily the most technical fights no 
but halfway through the first one, you knew you were seeing something. And this Stephen Bonner, Forrest Griffin was the same way. Two guys out there engaged in like literally almost some of the most primal combat you've ever seen. Technique wise. And they were awesome. fighting for something. Right. Like the the winner was going to get the contract and going to get to be a pro in the sport and mm-hmm. the loser was going to go home. home. Yeah. And this is what these guys are all shooting for at that point. Because right then. And it hadn't happened before. No. In fact, if you remember, there were, the cable stations were, didn't want to air it. Like they, they were afraid that it was too violent for American television. And there'd been a lot of issues about this. Yeah. And the people that were fighting at the time, the people who were involved in like the mixed martial arts world at that point, it was very punk rock. There was no money. They were doing this stuff on reservations. They were doing this stuff in states with no athletic commission mm-hmm. because for the most part, you couldn't get it licensed. So they were doing right. it on tribal land because you don't have to worry about that. Half the shows in Washington were all held on reservations because of that. And it was this very punk rock thing. And to a certain extent, if we're going to be really obnoxious about this and make the analogy, that was the Nirvana. <laughs> that was the Nirvana moment. Right okay. There, was where it broke through. Sure. Sure. Stephen Bonner, Forrest Griffin was Nirvana for mixed martial arts. Right. And... From that point, it's and, been getting huge. Yeah. Ever since. It's been on this crazy growth path. But. And then it became, it felt like to me, it just became more like a reality show. And right. And lost for the most part, you know, and I'll be honest, I don't watch a ton of MMA anymore. I've watched. Dude, when I was some, dealing poker, I couldn't watch like the poker on TV anymore, even though I watched a lot before I became a poker dealer because I was so interested in it. As soon as it became a thing I did, I wasn't interested in the showy television version. It's not even really so much that. That's the weird part. It's It's like. I know I'm, I can watch people fight that I don't know. I can watch a mixed martial arts event up until very recently that mm-hmm. I don't know. And I can watch two guys. I don't know two girls. I don't know very clinical about it. But every time I've, I've ever watched somebody I know in the cage, it's like, I can't, I can't do that. The, the level of like involvement emotionally with that is oh. so hard. I remember like, like, Okay, so there's a local guy who runs a school downtown. His name's Ivan Salaveri. He's a friend of mine. Um, I remember the first time I ever watched Ivan fight. It was on a card called um, World Fighting Alliance, Indy card. He had fought in the UFC a couple times. Um, Joe Rogan's a huge fan. He still refers to, like, this one side control, like, this one sequence that people do as, like, Ivan's thing. And I remember watching Ivan fight on TV for the first time and being like, oh, my God, oh, my God, I know that guy. <laughs> this is weird. And then, you know, seeing him fight, Later, a guy named Husmar Paul Harris, um, Brazilian leg lock specialist who is known for holding heel hooks too long, and watching him tap Ivan out with an armbar from the back, finding myself thinking, oh my God, I just, like, you're heartbroken when you see your friends out there. You can't, this is hard to watch. Right. You can't see him lose. I, we have one guy out of our school who's currently 7-0 as an amateur. His name is Josh Ratliff, and he's a phenomenal kid. I mean, he's like 23. Phenomenal young talented kid played some rugby in college um just great great dude to have around and every time that guy has gotten into the cage and i've been cage side i've cornered him twice i've been cage side and it's like i have to bite my lip to stop myself from like starting to yell things <laughs> i don't have that level of emotional detachment that i need to watch my friends get in there and do like that. no wait so you want to yell coaching stuff to him or you want to yell at the um, other side well for the most part, when you're being coached, you don't want to have a whole bunch of people trying to yell helpful advice. Right. Find one person, listen to that. Right. It's a case of like the rational part of your brain that can coach tends to go 
a little sideways. Like I can watch people, I can coach people in, in jujitsu matches all day. And I still have this thing that if I'm really focused on it enough, I can somehow make you win. It's totally wrong, but I, <laughs> I feel that way. That's, but you're the, you're the head of the school. You I'm got the guy it. That's that, your thing. Like, I can, I can make you win. I somehow think I can will people to beat people who are way better. And I've done this <laughs> on a number of occasions where I'm just like, you know, just grinding my teeth on this, but I don't have that same level of, Oh my God, that I do for MMA. And the thing that really kind of got me to stop really watching MMA recently was, um, there's a professional fighter by the name of Nick Diaz, who is a very polarizing figure. Nick Diaz is like that screw up. We all know yeah. growing up, he had a really rough upbringing. He super freak physical athlete runs triathlons for fun cardio machine mm -hmm. he just got suspended by the nevada state athletic commission who's kind of the big dog regulatory agency in the sport for five years for i want to say it was a third failed drug test for marijuana marijuana for marijuana that guy is not able to compete because of marijuana absolutely because marijuana might be an enhancement uh-huh was he slowing himself down enough to make it fair for everybody else? Well, the weird part here is that, like, the test that he took immediately before the fight, this is before the Anderson Silva fight, because he just fought Anderson Silva recently, he lost, but the test immediately before the fight was clean. He took two tests afterwards. One of them was dirty. One of them wasn't. Yeah, so there's obviously some irregularities. He's got a lawyer. He's going to be suing, but right. he was pretty unrepentant about it and was kind of like, and, and Nick's never played the game politically. He just doesn't do that. So are these people allowed to drink? Yes. Um, because drinking is legal? Yes. Uh, what if he spent time in Washington State? I don't think that matters because it's illegal at the federal level. Mm. Nevada's probably going to be one of the last states that actually legalizes. Just the political climate down there is not... They still will. Oh, by the time we're gone. This whole thing. I mean, it's going to be legal in this country. Yeah, that's just... That... Ten, year, ten more years. And we're going to be at least not having to deal with that. But when you start hearing the guy's story... And you realize, like, you know people like that. And the difference between Nick Diaz and some of the people you know is that Nick Diaz is famous. Right. He is far better. Like, I can remember the second kid that Josh fought. We were at um event in Monroe. And this guy that he's fighting has lost, like, five amateur fights in two months. He was a last-minute replacement for the kid that he was supposed to fight. Yeah. And amateur MMA is its own special shit show around here. Uh, and that's as far as I'll go with that. But yeah, this was a last minute replacement. This kid had lost five fights in two months. <laughs> what kind of athletic commission lets a kid get into the ring and get his ass kicked five times in two months? Okay. This is not okay. No. Okay. Someone's going to die. Okay. Yeah. When you put it that way, <laughs> anyway, that begins to make sense to me. Right. I mean, concussions, things like that. So this is not good. So, you know, like literally in between rounds, this is the only guy that's made it out of the first round on Josh. And that should say something about how tough this dude is. He, every time he looks up. He sees Josh just like mad dogging him on the stool and then puts his head back down and finally like stuck his head in to get guillotined at the beginning of the second row. Guillotine is a choke where you wrap the arm around the neck basically in the broad strokes and squeeze. Yeah. And I talked to this kid afterwards and he's not okay. He's not okay. Not just from getting hit, but he's not okay. <laughs> he's like saying things like, I just want to get in there and bang. I just want to get in there and fight. Maybe I should go to the, the, the there's a school in the East Coast. I think I might go. And it's like, look, where do you live? Where do you live? Because you don't grapple. You don't know how to grapple. Where do you live? Everett. I'm like, okay, so I'm in Edmonds. I want you to come down. I'm not trying to say I'm better than whoever's teaching you, but there's some stuff that you should work on. 
And I think you need the help. I, I don't do this to say, oh, we're so much better than you. You should come in. It's like, man, you are going to get hurt. <laughs> and I made the connection finally that like, there's so many guys out there that are like that. They're just totally damaged. The only thing they can do is fight. And I don't know that I want to be a part of that. I don't know that I feel good about this. I mean, jujitsu is not synonymous with that world. Right. Jiu-jitsu, for the most part, is very cool and laid back. It's a lot like skateboarding right before it blew up. That's why I thought it was interesting you brought up Animal Chin. Because, you know, I had talked to Craig, who I had referenced earlier, the Wallows local guy, about we should make our own version of that. Go back and find what is the Animal Chin of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And make a, and make a video? Sure. Because there's a lot of the same stuff that's starting to happen right now. Hashtags. People are hashtags. People are becoming brands. People are really taking this to that level. <laughs> Parents are like pulling their kids out of school and homeschooling them so they can train three times a day. And this is insane because there's no money okay, so, in this. Well, so then the, I guess that you could make the movie and I'm sure this has already happened, right? The guy's got to be new in town. Mm -hmm. He's got this weird style of jujitsu. Oh, that's that easy. He falls. <laughs> he falls for this girl who trains at a different school, right? And then her brother ends up being like, yeah, her the, brother's an ass kicker at the other school. No, it's I, just you know the story because it's the story. We could write this down. But right here's now. the thing, though. But here's the thing, and this I discovered this last uh, uh, last year, and I never knew this. If you want to make one of these movies work, it has to be North Shore. Do you ever see it's a surfing version yeah. of this? Yeah, it's phenomenal. Like I am, I became, I had never seen it. I was at my buddy's house in Maui uh, last year and he's like, you've never seen North Shore. And I'm like, but it's, isn't it just A, B and C? He goes, it's the A, B and C. <laughs> he, but, but what I didn't realize is they actually made it, I guess, in conjunction with people in the surf community there. And they mm -hmm. went, no, no, no on that. Yes, Don't yes, yes on this. So in the end, it's super cool. And it has those elements of the, the locals, but, right. it, and, and there's like a, there's like a building respect at the end where it all comes together, but you buy it. It's emotionally satisfying. Well, that, so do to that a certain extent is why the, the movie Red Belt that came out, that's why that kind of sucked. Okay, hold on. I was just about to say I absolutely love that movie. Really? I love Red Belt, but it's Mammoth. It's probably more because it's... <laughs> that guy so. trains. That guy's a brown belt last time I checked. He trains with Hansel Gracie out you don't. You don't like uh, Red Belt? There are parts of Red Belt is that are very Hollywood. Is because it's too Hollywood. The there whole everything very... is fixed, and he has to fight down the hallway at the end. He, yeah, I mean, it just it gets to you a know point what where... all I ever remember about Red Belt is the last couple seconds because where it's so cool. Daniel Santos handing him the belt at the end, and and what I also like about it is that if you weren't paying attention, you don't understand how this movie ended. Well, because he says there's only one Red Belt. Yeah, like earlier in the movie, you can't. You can't become that, you know? And that's the and thing. And then it's like, he's about to talk and he's out of breath and he's waiting for it. And then the dude just shows up and just hands him the belt and the movie's over. I'm like, that was so killer. Like that whole movie existed for that point to get made. And the thing Boom. with me is like, there's enough of the cinematic aspect of it that it's like the movie. I think it's okay that you don't like a movie. I like you're right. And I'm just. <laughs> I, I think a better analogy movie-wise that I would try to do would be Vision Quest. No, okay. I think Vision Quest, because wrestlers still watch that. Wrestlers okay. still watch that movie. That's phenomenal. True Spokane story. I saw at the drive-in play at that same bar that Madonna plays in, in that movie. Nice. Yeah, Ichabod's. Yeah, at the drive-in played there. It's phenomenal. 
Crazy for You yeah, is crazy the song for she's you. playing in the bar. Uh-huh. Uh, they should have done a cover of Crazy for And it's for peak you. Madonna. I don't know if they knew that, but it's peak Madonna. It's like a prayer sort of era Madonna. Oh, it's for, incredible Madonna. For me, that's the Madonna that like, yeah. you know, when we think about Madonna guys our age, we're like, oh yes, absolutely. Don't care if she's a hundred years old. doesn't matter. So does that mean that dudes also uh, train by carrying giant logs up and down the stands at the... Uh, um, stadium wouldn't really surprise me all that much. Some of the things I have seen people do. <laughs> that guy's um, name is Shoot. Yeah, in the movie. Yeah, Shoot is the um the other wrestler, the the scary guy. <laughs> Not Matthew Modine. Is that who mm, who the hero is? I... The panty sniffer. <laughs> in the movie, in in Vision Quest, he's a yes. pan, he's a panty sniffer. <laughs> I actually read a treatment of Vision Quest not that long ago that dealt with it like he's the bad guy. Like, think about it. This, this, this kid is like cutting weight and he's like the psycho who's trying to drop all this weight to get into your division and fight you. So, oh, so it was redoing vision quest yeah, it was from like, the point of view of shoot. Yeah. From shoot's point of view. Cause shoot's pure. He's just like, wait a minute. Why is this crazy dude trying to drop weight? Of course I'm going to be freaking defending myself. You know, what, what is this? What's wrong with this guy? He's like walking around with this freaking telephone pole trying to intimidate <laughs> me. What's wrong with you, dude? No, no. Shoot had a telephone pole. So it's the other guy's perspective. Okay. Very good. <laughs> I'll shoot you the Star Wars one. It's the same way that talks about how the Empire is actually the right side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these rebels come along. Yeah, hippie anarchist scum, you know? <laughs> what happens after the Death Star blows up, huh? What does it look like then? Um, Speculation well, that J.J. Abrams is actually making that version. That's, um, that is very interesting. Hope he does. <laughs> hope he does uh, it looks pretty good from the trailers coming out okay yeah. look we're running out of time oh wow. i would uh i can tell that this could be one of those ones that could go on and on my friend we could so um i want to give you an opportunity to tell people about your school if, if someone was okay. interested what happens there i know you've got young people that come in i know so for the most part we're your friendly neighborhood brazilian jiu-jitsu school we have um literally all ages of people that train there we don't focus on you know pro fighters we don't focus on you know winning tournaments we have a wide range of people we have young kids as young as five years old we have people in their 50s that train i had a 76 year old call me yesterday he sounds like a jack lalane type i asked him what he does he said he wrestled back in the day he still does 100 push-ups and runs every day and i'm like all right <laughs> get in Come here on in. i want to see this um we have like i said a great mix of women men young kids older folks and we're all about anecdote this for a sec one of my old instructors back in brazil he's back in brazil now um his name is mamazinho and his english was terrible he was good at jiu-jitsu he didn't speak much english and i remember asking him a question about a grip on something like do i want to put my hand here or do i want to go lower down the sleeve here and he said in his wonderfully broken accent, Grief, I put my hand here. This is my jujitsu. Maybe you put your hand here. It's your jujitsu. And I think he was trying to blow me off. <laughs> I think he was like, yeah, okay, try it down there. See if that works for you, dude. <laughs> but I actually sort of took that one to heart. And it's like, I don't make this work the same way you do. I mean, I'm a big guy. I can do things that I wouldn't try to teach you simply because it's not going to work if you try it. But you can do things I can't do, right? We have a woman who's training now who had a stroke when she was a baby. Her whole left side is pretty much frozen. She can kind of move, but one of her arms is pretty much curled, 
permanently and her hand doesn't really work at all on that hand. So I don't look at that and see, oh, this isn't going to work. I look at that and see this is an opportunity to do something that's really never been done. Can I take this person and teach them how this works? And like I'm telling her, it's like, it's going to be harder. She's done Taekwondo her entire life. Hmm. So, I mean, she's, you know, she's definitely used to working. It's not that like, you know, she doesn't know how to work hard, but it's going to take somebody who's willing to like throw away a lot of the kind of rules about how this should work. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, you can't do this, but you can do this. You're in position to do this one thing that took me a while to learn because going over my shoulder like that is hard. But with the way your arm sits, you're naturally in that position. So all you really have to do is sort of move to your side. Your jujitsu, by the time you're done, isn't going to look like anyone else's, but no one's going to be able to stop it because no one's going to know what it is. So there's like this whole sort of dichotomy of like, I'm not going to try and make you me, but I'll make you good for you. You'll be able to have your own style that looks like you, not like me, because you don't look like me. Right. And you had an old guy say, that's yeah. my jujitsu, that's your jujitsu. Right, so you've right. got the lesson to apply to it. Yeah. And I think he was being a smart ass. I mean, I know the guy. He's not Mr. Miyagi, okay? <laughs> Mr. Miyagi. He's you. not Mr. Miyagi. Come on. Did he make you pay an offense? I know Mr. Miyagi. He fixes amps in North Seattle. <laughs> I'm dead serious. <laughs> I met him recently. Not even kidding. But this guy was, you know, he was one of those people that like, Kind of knocked the instructor on a pedestal thing over for me. I'm coming from punk rock. Right. We don't do that. One of my first coaches in the sport, one of my best friends in the world, is a woman named Cindy Hales. She was involved. We figured we were probably at a bunch of the same shows because she was at Evergreen. She was in Olympia in the early mid-90s. Oh, yeah. We know we were probably at the Jawbreaker Capitol Theater show. Sure. And we just clicked from like the first minute. Like I walked in. She was a brown belt at the time. She's really good. And she came up as like a professional racquetball player. She was beating men nationally ranked at like 12 and 13. Phenomenal athlete. Blew out her knee. Got into punk rock. Said, screw it. Not doing athletics. Got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And she's another one of those people who just doesn't do moderation. Right. Gets into it and just by four years in, she's beating everybody in the sport. She's fighting, you know, in Japan. She's cutting tons of weight and fighting Megumi Fuji over in Japan MMA. She's competing in like the bigger tournaments like Abu Dhabi. She's just killing it. And we always had that sort of connection of being like weird punk rock kids who don't really quite fit into that world. Right. So it's been, it's been phenomenal. You meet, there's, there's like this weird sort of core of people that you run into the train. You know, one of the guys who was in the Cro-Mags, Harley Flanagan has been doing this for years. And at some point I'll probably run into him. I've run into the old drummer from Poison who also drinks. <laughs> nice. Ricky Rocket. He's still got great hair. Yeah. <laughs> runs a custom drum company in LA and he's been doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for years. Killer. So and if, if someone wants to get involved, do they just come down and walk through the door? Basically what I would say is um, go to www.gbedmonds.com. GB Edmonds. GB Edmonds. Okay. Or Edmonds, E-D-M-O-N-D-S, B-J-J.com. There's a contact form on the site. Fill it out. We'll get back to you. We'll schedule you time to come in. We're real low pressure. We're not, you know. But it's not a walk in off the street with you no can. idea. You can. Absolutely. We're cool with that. Um, just show up. Um, morning and evening classes usually start uh, 1130 in the morning, 630 evening. Come in and we will get you straightened out. 
is it training or is it a workout? I mean, what, how it's do you look it. at it? It's well, all of that. It's all of that. Start usually 15, 20 minutes, warm up, running, mat movement, like get down on the mat and move yourself around mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Calisthenics usually work a couple of techniques and then um, what we call sparring or rolling, which is basically you're, you're essentially doing what you just learned okay. against a live resistant opponent, which is the secret to why jujitsu, judo, boxing, all that stuff works. Because you're trying to do it against somebody who knows how to stop it. Right. It's one thing if I can make a move work against somebody who's never seen it before. It's another thing altogether to make it work against somebody like me. I competed this weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah. You said that's yeah. right. We were going to record this a little earlier. <laughs> so how'd it go? Um, well, I got the one guy in the bracket that I really didn't want. <laughs> Shoot. Um, I lost on points. His name's Omar Sava. He's really good. And I, I finally watched the tape this morning. Watched the video. <laughs> and... I can see where I made the one mistake that got me swept. Uh, Basically, I executed game plan perfectly for the first two and a half minutes. Hmm? And then I made a mistake. And at the level I'm at now, you can't do that. You, you paid for it. You huh? make a mistake, you're going to be on your back. And from there, it was you know kind of a grind fest against a top-level competitor. I knew how this was going to go once that <laughs> happened. I was like, oh, shit. To make matters even worse, the guy had come up and trained with me. We had sparred for like probably 45 minutes two weeks before so we were real familiar with each other right, I, mean, right. I knew what he does he knows what i do and we went back and forth he's tough as hell and i saw his name in the bracket against me and i was like oh god that's like the one guy i didn't want everybody else it's like okay this is you know i got an idea of how this is all gonna go and it's like oh oh geez this is not gonna be fun <laughs> but you know that's that's the level i'm at now to be honest i mean my competition record since i've been a black belt has been dismal yeah because everybody you're fighting is good. Yeah. I fought a guy two years ago at Pan Am's 2014. His name is um, Leonardo Dalla Costa. Now, I know approximately what you were doing in 1994. You know approximately what I was doing in 1994. Sure, sure. What we were not doing was fighting at the top levels of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> he was. <laughs> okay. And I see his name in the bracket against me and I start laughing. I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do against this guy? And I realized, like, you got nothing to lose. What you do is you push the pace, make him deal with that, play your game, go out and do what you want to do and make him handle that. So it's fascinating. I mean, you can, you can compete against legends. You can do all kinds of cool stuff in the sport. And it's still this weird kind of underground thing that really resonates with a lot of people who came out of backgrounds like what we're talking about. Sure. There's a lot of old hardcore kids in this. Well, I can tell how it's really just lit a fire in you. Well, I mean, I can see, I mean, it's, it, it's transformed you <laughs> to some degree and you know, and it's, and it's, it's, you've been on board with it now for quarter of your yeah, life. It's been 10 years. And like, literally I've been so obsessed with this stuff that like, what was the name of that band? Broken, broken, what broken, side. broken side. Yeah. See, I have no idea who these people are. Cause all I do now is like train. <laughs> and then the other one that I, I won't allow myself to remember the name of, I'm so offended by See, it. That's the thing. I mean, like, my musical taste has been a little... Okay, so... Look, you can always listen to Jawbreaker. I do. I do. There was a really phenomenal band... Are you listening band. to Beach Slang? No. There's something new you should listen to. Beach Be- Slang? Beach Slang. Dude, trust me. Okay. Just, I do. I do. There yep. is a band that I wanted to reference because their whole career happened from like 2006 to 2009 while I wasn't paying attention. They ended up on Revelation. They were from here. 
It wasn't, it might have been Sinking Ships, maybe. Sinking Ships is good. I've yeah. got a Sinking Ships record. I remember that. And I was just like, I, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention at the time. I was doing jujitsu. I was t- totally like locked in it. And I remember thinking like, this band is something I probably would have gone to see a whole bunch of times because yeah, they were great. They were good. And I had no idea they were even going. They had a career. They broke up. Then they played reunion shows and stopped doing that. And the entire time I wasn't paying attention. I'm like, fuck, I missed them. And I missed the reunion. This sucks. For the record release. Or no. So I put out the 7-inch. And then Stay Gold was coming back to play a reunion. Ooh. Reunion last show thing. Okay. And so we took... We took, you just, you got me. We were going to, we were going to quit, but now I'm going to tell the story because it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and this is when I was still doing excursion, right. but it was right still near the end. It was petering out. Right. We got this crazy idea. I had 10 copies of the, uh, sinking ships, seven inch. that didn't have covers or anything. It was, it was an overrun. Right? right. So we made special treasure hunt covers Ooh. and, and the singer and I, Danny, we went out and we went all around Seattle and we found 10 spots where we could hide a record. And then <laughs> this was actually, I wasn't even living here yet, man. This was like, I was still living at that place where Matt jumped in through the flaming table right. in, in Roosevelt area. So um, the covers all had the clue that I was going to give online for where the record was hidden. And some of them were hidden. Like one was buried like a foot on <laughs> ground. One was hanging from the Aurora Bridge. Where the bus went off, <laughs> but you couldn't see it unless you were under the bridge where the troll is looking up at the spot where the bus went off and you could see it hanging down on a wire. Like wow. we went crazy you with it out. and they were, each one was in packaging that would protect it for where it was. Right. Right. And so I put, uh, the morning of that show, I put like 6am, I put the clues up and people just went out to find these records. And all five of them or all 10 of them were found in like six hours. That is awesome. And it was sinking ships record. It was a treasure, the treasure hunt. (laughs) It was one of the best things I ever did with the record label. It was so much fun. Teams of guys went out a couple, like Bill Baker and Adam Pacey went out and they found like three of them and everyone was like, Oh, it's cheating. Dave told them. No, I didn't. I didn't tell anybody like, (laughs) but some people could just figure out the clues. If you knew hardcore, if you knew, so there was, so, you know, the Brotherhood record cover, yeah, yeah. looking out over the city from the park. Yeah, right? Kinnear up on Queen Anne, right? Uh, yes. Okay. So, there, to the if you're standing there, looking at that view, to the left, down below, there's a weird little street that comes up. Yeah. And it has a, it has a cul-de-sac in it, right? Mm-hmm. And in the, at the top of that, there's a manhole. Okay. And so, we pulled the manhole cover <laughs> off that. <laughs> Went down the, the the handles, tied a record off down there, and put it back. And oh we said, God. we said it's down the manhole of the most phallic looking, the most phallic looking street on Seattle's most famous hardcore view. Like that was like one of the the clues. <laughs> so you had to go there, look for a phallic looking street, and, and then, then pull the man, manhole. find a way to get the manhole off, and there was a record down there. Oh my God! <laughs> like that, was that is so awesome and and see this is the kind of spirit that like this is i think why like people who came from that scene kind of find what we're doing it's it's a little bit like that in terms of like you can still be really creative you need some adventure two years ago like 2013 um there was a typhoon that hit the philippines Mm -hmm. um hyan and i had just come back from a tournament in california um my wife's family she had family over there 
We went a week not hearing from him. So it was freaky. We were like, oh, God. And it's just like one of those weird tragedies where, like, you don't know how this is going to come out. This is not a place where the Internet works real well. So I had gone to a tournament and refed, and I was driving back. You know, we, we had these tournaments at the time in Bonnie Lake, which is way south, way like Enumclaw South, basically. So I'm driving back, and I'm just like, God, we should do something. We should do something. We should do some kind of benefit. There's nothing we can do. This is really frustrating. So there's this concept going called Grapplethon. And what they've been doing is like a 24-hour, like, for charity, for et cetera, having somebody on the mat for 24 hours straight. Oh, it just keeps going, like you tag in, tag out? Essentially. Nice. But it doesn't have to be just one person. So what we did in three weeks, um, me and a guy named Dan Dejos, who runs um, Vershai. Oh, no, excuse me. He runs a company called Artleet now. He used to work for Vershai. He's a designer. And, um, you know, we put this thing together in three weeks. We ended up raising almost $10,000. <laughs> we did this marathon. We did it at the big school that my, my professor, Rodrigo Lopes, runs down in Seattle, Gracie Baja, Seattle. And it was like literally the best party I've ever been to. Wow. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. We've got 50 people in there grappling. 50 <laughs> people in there training. It's the coolest atmosphere I've ever been in. And I've been to some great shows. This was topping all of them. And oh, it was like, wow. I can't believe we threw this together in three weeks. We totally punk rocked it. We put shirts together. We put flyers. We did the whole thing. Dan did a banner. And you were, at the secret, you were at the secret Jawbreaker show. Yes. And you're still saying this I'm is still, better. This was fun. <laughs> I mean, there is a spar that happened at three something in the morning, maybe four something in the morning between one of our guys, Chris Johnson, and um, a college All-American wrestler named Jordan Kirsch that just was legendary i was watching it and i was like man there's only like 10 people in here and it's four o'clock in the morning these two guys are going like hard someone caught somebody and neither one of those guys likes to get caught so that was when I mean, chris is a firefighter he's a crossfitter runs marathons for fun college lacrosse player jordan's a college all-american wrestler neither one of these guys likes losing at all so when someone got <laughs> caught next thing you know the escalation path we had you know, just the coolest like bunch of people that came through. We raised a bunch of money. It was a good cause. Um, cool. It was it was amazing. And this is where your your background in like punk rock and DIY shows comes in because you realize like we don't gotta wait. We can do this. We just just make it happen. Just make it work. Just we just gotta go. Call people. Start putting. Flyers Every one of up. those bands yelled "Go" for a reason. <laughs> uh huh. You gotta get your ass out there and do it. Seriously, and you start to realize after a while that like, and this is what I meant when I said earlier like we won. Because the limitations, once you've been through that scene, once that you came up in that scene and you realized that really all you had to do to make a show happen or to put out a record was to just put in the work. I mean, I never was the most talented musician, but I could show up for band practice consistently. I could play the songs. I could do the work. Yeah. I mean, you did the same thing with the label, you know, you, you put the records out, you did the work to make sure it happened. It's the same thing here. You, you do the work to make sure the show happens. You do the work to make sure the tournament happens. I mean, shit, I'm running a school because I showed up and did it, you know, and it works. It's crazy. Like, so you, so you're bringing your whole life, your whole background in punk rock right up to this day, right up to your Absolutely. professional life. That's my biggest influence. That's my biggest influence. Like, you know, it's interesting because I tell people when they ask, like my, my philosophy on like coaching people is like an amalgamation of the book Moneyball and the book Ender's Game with some Callahan's Crosstime Saloon in there somewhere too. With a little less uh, uh, gay hate. Yeah. You know, we were talking about people whose work we <laughs> like, we love the work. <laughs> it's perfect. You call me out on Ayn Rand and then you right. drop And I throw out Orson game. Scott Card, who is every bit. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, I, I just, 
Yeah, it breaks my fucking heart, man. Let me just say. But the thing Ender's is, Ender's Game's a good book. Ender's Game's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, it's like the first screwdriver record, right? I mean, it's, it's not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't like the first screwdriver record. <laughs> it's a record. bad callback, my friend. <laughs> but it's it's one of those things that like it's it's so good that it almost makes you forget what a shithead the guy is. Yeah. It's so good that like he can't help. I mean, he, no matter how many bad sequels he's written. The original's out there. Look, Hunter Thompson probably did some of the shit they tried to put him away for. He's still one of the most amazing written word people. I mean, I, there's nothing like when yeah. I read his stuff. So, And you know what it took I'll him to take, get there. You know what it took him to get there. I mean, I'll take the words and... Uh, right. Hate the sin and love the sinner, right? <laughs> I like, guess. Like Orson Scott Card would probably say. I suppose. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, and then make a law against the sin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, Utah. Well, no, wait, he's from North Carolina. No, he's not. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Brother, man, we are going to close Word. this down. No worries. So um, thank you so much for coming hey, in, man. Thank you. I appreciated it. I had a blast. Oh, it's good. And uh, we're going to we're gonna have to get you behind this microphone again in some capacity. Well, we'll figure it out. Maybe a guest on we'll another, figure it out. another show at least. I could, I could probably do that. All right. Had fun. It was a blast. Matsuoka is going to want to see you. <laughs> Man, I seriously thought you were going to have him in here. I seriously thought he was going to All right, Matt, come out. No. That would be awesome. But uh, Yeah, if you sat in there for the entire like two and a half hours we've been talking, I'd be shocked. Because I had to run in and say, okay, he knows I'm going to trick you, so just stay till the end. Man, how are you going to tell me he didn't pee that entire time? I would smell it. I didn't. Off the floor. And because it's Matt, I had to throw a scatological reference in there somewhere. Yeah. Wait till you see some of the stuff we do on his show. Love okay. you, buddy. Miss you. <laughs> All right, brother. I'll talk to you later, man. Thank you, dude. Take care. All right. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think you guys can probably tell from listening to it. Hey, before I get into any of this, I want to tell you guys, as usual, if you need to ride in the Seattle area, use Black Crown Car. Go to blackcrowncar.com, download the app, get it on your phone. They will get you where you need to go. The owner, Soto, he's a friend. He's been on this podcast. You guys have heard him. You can go listen to his podcast. It's great. He goes back to the music scene for years. Now he's got this car service. I've worked for him, driving for that car service in the past. It's awesome. They're awesome. Use them. Okay, here we go. Corrections. I just They're not corrections, but a couple things that we weren't able to figure out in the course of the episode. No, I have an actual correction. Okay, Josie and the Pussycats. Apparently, I misremembered how it ended. I thought that at the end, Parker Posey was a secret albino. But I just read the synopsis, and it turns out that the character played by Alan Cumming is the one who was the secret albino. Here's the point. That movie ends with a reveal of a secret albino. That, it still happens, and that is crazy. So, um, yeah. Griff was completely right about the music. I went and listened to some of the stuff on YouTube. I hadn't listened to it for years. I hadn't heard it since really since I watched the movie. And that, that Letters to Cleo lady, she's got a cool voice. And those songs are very much in the style of, uh, of the stuff that Mr. Matt Matsuoka likes. So it all makes sense to me. Um, talking about the bands that have just been offensive to me, I couldn't remember. My, my brain had blocked out that horrible band and uh, I had to do a little research and I 
I went to Google and I started typing in things that I thought would help me find the name of the band since my I, I was completely blocked and I typed in like tattoo douche singer Las Vegas and immediately a story came up about this awful band and it was them it was a picture of him dancing alongside his stupid car because uh, that's what he does in the video because he's whatever the band was called falling in reverse you want to find out what I'm talking about Google that I'm not linking it because it's horrible yeah stuff like that I just don't understand how that grows out of the fertile soil that we created over the years with this music scene so all right that's that yeah I'm gonna let you go just uh, do me a favor okay go to Facebook and like the nobody's knows Facebook page facebook.com slash nosy nobody you'll know when you're there you'll see our little uh, twisted question mark symbol almost looks like a nose and while you're at it if, if, if it's cool go to Twitter and follow us on Twitter that would be fantastic because I can get more information out quicker that way and we've got a lot of stuff coming I keep saying that but um, I'm probably recording I, mean, I may be recording for a new episode of a new podcast within 24 hours we're gonna see if we can get that actually to happen this weekend if not next but there's artwork being completed as we speak there's show format notes being made it's coming and uh we talk a lot in this episode griff and i about the guy who's gonna be the focus of this show matt matsuoka it's gonna be a uh hopefully it's gonna be a beautiful mess all right so i don't know maybe that's the next place i'll see you on matt's show all right thanks for listening bye This podcast is a product of the Nobody's Knows Podcast Network. Executive Producers, David R. Larson and K. Drake Streetman. Music for this episode provided by Polymorph from the record Artifacts, Demos, and Debris. 